Well, so there's a spectrum of conspiracy theories uh, from realistic uh, on the realistic end and on the paranoid end. So, roughly speaking, the grander the conspiracy theory, the more people that have to be involved, the more elements that have to come together, um, the less likely it is to be true. I do, I do think there should be definitely should be some. Just like I think there should be, um, let's just say, people that challenge the mainstream theory in anything. You know, I mean, this is what I do for a living, basically, is study people on the fringes. I mean, just take Oliver Stone's JFK. Uh, I, I mean, this has been so dissected and debunked, it's, you know, it's, there's nothing in there really of any value, but it's so well done that you can't help but watch it and come away thinking, okay, there just has to be something. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, we're speaking with Michael Shermer, the author of many books, including Why People Believe Weird Things, The Moral Arc, and his latest book, which is the main topic of our discussion, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. We do our best to draw a clear line between correct and incorrect usages of the term conspiracy theory, we talk about the psychological motivations of conspiracy theories, some of the more prominent ones in the news, social media algorithms, the current political environment, we make some guesses for 2024, we talk about lab leak, instrumental rationality, and why people may have evolved in order to believe more conspiracy theories, the practical consequences of that for government and economy, the state of academia in 2022, and this current status of the intellectual dark web. It was really a wide-ranging and thorough conversation. I think we took uh, a journey to some unexpected places, but still wonderful nonetheless. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode to finish off Season 3. And trust me, I have some amazing guests coming up for Season 4 as well. You can catch that next week. And if you liked any of the shows, if you like some of the future shows, then the number one thing you can do to help the show is always this. It's always to tell a friend, and not only are you helping us, you're helping someone who probably has similar interests, who probably has similar habits, and so they'll probably enjoy the show just as much as you do. And you can do that in real life or on social media. Without further ado, here's Michael Shermer. All right. So, are positive or negative conspiracy theories more dangerous? Well, most of them are negative because <laughs> very few conspiracy theories uh, have a positive valence to them, where people are secretly trying to make the world a better place. Almost nobody uh, thinks about it that way. So, um, I'd say negative. Yeah. All right. So, what was very interesting in your book, in your book, conspiracy, uh, is that you talked about. Uh, I think there was some point where uh, most conspiracy theories, or if you didn't believe in conspiracy theories, you were considered naive or foolish. And by now, it's kind of completely reversed. But uh, when around when was that? And what's the historical development that led to that? Yeah, that's really post-World War II. Before that, um, pretty much everybody believed conspiracy theories. And they still do. Um, you know, survey 
uh, pollsters find that pretty much everybody ticks the box for at least one conspiracy theory. So that's actually not changed, but the perception of what the, the term conspiracy theory means has come to be a pejorative, like that's just a crazy conspiracy theory, or he's just one of those nutty tinfoil hat wackadoodle conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones, something like that. When in fact, a lot of conspiracy theories turn out to be true, you know, so there's kind of a, a logic to believing them. It, it, there is an interesting history and in people that study the history of conspiracy theories about why that changed. And it, it's somewhat debatable, but it looks like roughly the 1950s around the time of McCarthyism and the, and the kind of conspiracy theory that communists were infiltrating the government and corporations and Hollywood films and things like that. And so after that, it became kind of a pejorative. And then it got bumped up after the Kennedy assassination that anybody who thinks it was somebody other than Lee Harvey Oswald or there was somebody in addition to Lee Harvey Oswald that killed Kennedy, then that was just a crazy conspiracy theory, which Hoover and, and the FBI allowed to uh, uh, kind of spread through the culture because it served their purpose. Not that they invented the idea of calling crazy uh, conspiracy theories completely crazy, but that it was already in that direction and they kind of encouraged it. Right. So uh, is there any specific reason why it would be the 1950s, either kind of historical or technological? You already mentioned McCarthyism. Is that is that one that appears to be? Yeah, that appears to be uh, the reason, Um, you know, government was getting much larger. And so when bureaucracies get larger, they do a lot of things behind closed doors that the public doesn't know about. Maybe Congress knows about it. Maybe it doesn't. You know, and it's around this time that that we later discovered that the CIA and the FBI had concocted various surveillance programs um, and other mind control programs like MKUltra, the CIA's program to uh, manipulate people to see if we could control their behaviors through psychoactive drugs and other techniques, because we thought that the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans were doing this. So we set up a program. This was not official, not legal, <laughs> not to mention not moral, uh, you know, dosing U.S. citizens or their own um, employees with LSD without their knowledge or consent. You know, that's that's illegal. And or, you know, warrantless wiretaps, you know, wiretapping, spying on people without a judge uh, giving an, uh, an order to allow that to happen. That's illegal. But this was done all the time. The Intel Pro program by the FBI to spy on social justice groups like the Black Panthers and the American Indian Movement and lots and lots of other dozens of groups that uh, were mainly under the umbrella of civil rights groups. Uh, Hoover spied on them and you know, planted uh, spies in their groups and did things to make them look bad or in, including committing murder uh, to make, and then make them look like murderers. Whereas it was the FBI that did this and, you know, all the way up to spying on Martin Luther King Jr. Recording his um, sex capades in hotel rooms. He wasn't the most faithful husband apparently. Um, but, you know, they used that as a way to blackmail him. That blackmail is illegal. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's illegal. But the FBI did that, right? So, uh, you know, there's enough of that to go on that you can, it's somewhat speculative, but to think that they then also, you know, floated the idea that, uh, you know, calling a, it a conspiracy theory as being a crazy thing would, would be to their, to their benefit. 
Right. So, so that history, that history kind of sounds like a reason why uh, conspiracy theories might have uh, might have become more salient, right? More popular. But uh, I still don't really get why there was maybe a social or a kind of elite turn against the idea of a conspiracy theory, right? Yeah. And also it was around this time too, that journalists and academics largely dismissed it. I mean, the most famous uh, kind of pre-modern study of conspiracies was Richard Hofstetter's, um, the, um, uh, what is it? Sorry, I've spaced out the paranoid style in American politics, but he meant uh, conspiracy theories as being paranoid, uh, that it's, uh, you know, people that believe them are delusional. And, you know, uh, and his work has not held up well in scholarship. He was a professional historian for sure, but he wasn't a social scientist in the sense of knowing psychology and how, how to do experiments. And his work has not held up at all. And in fact, I've reversed it completely that I'm claiming that there's a kind of rationality to believing conspiracy theories and there's a logic behind it and it's not delusional. And in any case, you know, we know from lots of studies of people who believe conspiracy theories, they're not mentally ill. They're not delusional. They're not hallucinating. Uh, you know, they're regular people. They're educated. You know, they went to college, they have families, they have careers, jobs, they keep gas in the tank and food in the fridge, take the kids to a school, they go off to work. You know, we know this from like the January 6th insurrectionists. We know who they all are. And again, these are not mostly not uh, fringe people. They're just regular citizens and doing the th same thing the rest of us do. Just caught up in a belief system that to them, they thought made sense. The boss, the president of the United States told them that their country was being stolen from them. Why would they not believe that? Right. Historically, <laughs> you know, you want to trust your government and trust your president. And you know, so they were caught up in a false belief, not not a delusional belief. Uh, taking drawing that distinction there, I think, is very important. What makes them what makes those beliefs false, but not not delusional? Where do you draw that line? Right. Well, so there's a spectrum of conspiracy theories uh, from realistic uh, on the realistic end and on the paranoid end. So it, roughly speaking, the grander the conspiracy theory, the more people that have to be involved, the more elements that have to come together, um, the less likely it is to be true. So, you know, in the realistic conspiracy theory realm, you have things like Watergate. You know, the president wants to break into the Democratic headquarters pre uh, 72 election to spy on them to figure out what their what their campaign tactics are. Okay, that's not crazy. I mean, that's kind of the kind of thing somebody would do. Or the Volkswagen uh, cheating the emission standards in Europe is my other example. You know, the, that's a that's a that turned out to be a true conspiracy theory. They did do that, um, and it's you know not in the realm of of delusion or paranoia. It's it's like that's what corporations do. You know, the insider trading in Wall Street, it happens all the time. There's nothing particularly grandiose about that. It's just kind of typical and explained by human behavior, greed, right? Or the desire for power in the case of politicians that do things like that. Uh, but if you yeah, scale sure. up... But if you scale up to, you know, like the the alien lizard transforming lizards are running the world and, you know, that that Bill Gates wants to, you know, control the world population or George Soros is trying to turn America into a communist country. You know, these kinds of things, they're just so far out there uh, 
and the evidence, of course, doesn't fit it. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And, you know, the idea that Bill Gates wants to control the world by chipping people through vaccines. I mean, okay, this is just so far out there. It's just ridiculous. That's on the paranoid side. Right. The, The way that I used to think about this, I still think about this in this way, although I talk about it less, is you just look at the probability distribution. Right. And and this is actually something that I think comes intuitively to most people is that if a lot of things have to happen in order for something to work, then that thing is less likely. Right. You know, like winning winning a lottery number where you match three numbers is a lot easier than winning one where you match 10 numbers. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's it's the same deal with uh, conspiracy theories where it's if it's like, okay, you need a team of like four people to break into Watergate and they report to one guy and they report report to Nixon. Uh, Yeah, that's like six people involved, uh, most of whom have, uh, or all of whom have uh, significant interests in keeping it secret. Like that's, that's somewhat believable. uh, Or or that is quite, that's quite believable. And it did happen. Right. Whereas something like something like the Bill Gates microchip thing, for example, that would require in terms of the number of people to develop that kind of technology, which I guess is not obvious to most people, especially if they don't work in in, in work in uh, computer hardware. But the the amount of people to develop that kind of technology would be would be like dozens, if not hundreds. And just keeping all of that secret where there's so much yeah. kind of reward for and so much like documentation that has to be produced, right? That, that would be just many orders of magnitude, much more difficult. Uh, and, and that's how I usually think of these things, right? That's how I usually draw the line is just like how many, how many moving parts are there that have to all work in order for this whole thing to whole thing to come together. Yeah, exactly. It's a perfect way to put it. Uh, I mean, just think about 9-11 as an inside job. We know the planes hit the buildings, although I should point out that there are 9-11 truthers that are called the no-planers. They don't think there are any planes at all. It was all CGI and holograms and whatever. Anyway, but we can dismiss them. Most 9-11 truthers dismiss them. Uh, But so you'd have to somehow coordinate not only the planes flying into the buildings, which is hard enough to do as it is, but they managed to pull it off, but that the people that planted the explosive devices would have had to know ahead of time what floors the planes were going to hit, because you can see in the videos that the buildings collapse at the point of impact where the planes hit. So if these are explosive devices that really brought down the World Trade Center buildings, then they would have had to know ahead of time. How would they do that? And who were these people that that got in those buildings and planted in those explosive devices? I mean, we know from uh, talking to companies that demolish buildings for a living, this is you know, done all the time, um, you know, they, they take weeks and months to prepare a building for demolition. They have to go in there. They got to break down all the drywall to get into the support structural beams, wrap them in these explosive devices and wiring all over the place to, you know, to trigger the explosions at the right time in the right sequence. And somehow they did this in the World Trade Center buildings, both buildings, and no one noticed. You know, I mean, how <laughs> is that possible? And, you know, they have a rebuttal. Oh, they were there under the pretense of elevator repair. Oh, come on. Elevator repair? What if they're nowhere near the elevators? Because they would have had to have been, you know, all over the buildings and and so on and so forth. And not one person who was involved in this probably would have had to have been hundreds of people wants to go on 60 Minutes to tell what he wants to write a tell-all book, you know, become a best-selling author. You know, whistleblowers, uh, this is how we find out about conspiracies. Whistleblowers are motivated uh, morally or whatever their motivation to come clean and or not a not one friend of a friend who dated a guy who was in on the explosive devices in the world trade center has come forward or take WikiLeaks. you know here you have 
tens of millions of highly classified documents revealed. Not one in there about 9-11 is an inside job, or for that matter, the moon landing was faked or, you know, who really shot uh, JFK that worked for the CIA or the FBI or nothing. So you would predict if it was true and we got a, a huge tranche of classified documents, there'd be something in there about it. And there was plenty in there that was pretty damning of our U.S. actions in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. You know, pretty bad stuff. And or we found out about Abu Ghraib, again, because of whistleblowers. And me lie because of a journalist, Seymour um, Hirsch, that exposed this when he met people that were there at me in Vietnam and so on. So we find out about these things. And, you know, so something like that, we would know, you know, because it was so huge. Right. I, I think the, the JFK one, I think, is more interesting because I'm not sure how many people would have to coordinate in order to do that. Right. It could just be a quite small team of intelligence officers. But uh, then again, I think with regards to just the number of presidents who've probably had access to this by now, who who may have been interested, right? And the I think there was some recent controversy about some uh, Freedom of Information Act uh, requests of files that should have been declassified but are just stalling re- related to uh, JFK. But but to me, this kind of behavior pattern, you you do kind of have to you do have to have a kind of familiarity with some government. Uh, bureaucracies especially, but this kind of behavior pattern seems very much like covering for incompetence and very, very much not like covering for kind of covering for some kind of secret plan uh, that they had, right? If, if they just, uh, you can easily imagine a world where they just want to, uh, they just want to not appear so incompetent in terms of failing to secure, uh, in terms of failing to secure uh, JFK's detail, right? JFK security yeah. detail. Yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, uh, tranche of documents you're talking about were going to be released by uh, Obama. Then he delayed it. And then Trump said, well, because Trump didn't like Obama, you know, I'm going to do the opposite of whatever he did. So I'm going to release those documents, among other things. And then he didn't. And so, of course, JFK conspiracy theorists are, are going crazy about this. They must be hiding something about JFK. My suspicion is that they're, um, they don't want to release him because it probably would reveal even more embarrassing details about what the CIA was up to in spying on foreign nations or foreign uh, leaders or American citizens. You know, again, right. you know, we know about COINTELPRO and uh, Operation Paperclip, which I, I didn't mention yet, but, you know, uh, uh, the the um, CIA uh, getting Nazi scientists to come to America and work for us in, in weapons development, like chemical warfare, biological warfare, nuclear weapons, and so on before the Russians would get them. And, um, you know, this was, these were, a lot of them were pretty bad people. I mean, these are people that were developing, um, you know, biological warfare weapons for Hitler and so on. And, you know, had they not been part of Operation Paperclip, they might have been executed uh, as war criminals at, uh, as part of the Nuremberg trials. So, you know, we did that and stuff about the CIA in the 70s, helping to rig elections in South American countries to favor the fascist dictator over the communist dictator, because at least fascists are friendly to American business interests. You, you sort of cut, cut out there. Whereas communists might uh, nationalize the companies that we have there. Right. So, I mean, we did that, you know, assassinating foreign leaders. Uh, we CIA did a couple of those 
and including trying to assassinate Castro like a dozen times. Castro himself said, you know, if there was a gold medal in the Olympics for, for surviving assassination attempts, I, you know, I'd win it. <laughs> and, uh, hello? Uh, you, you know, so and, you know, Operation Northwoods that we found out uh, later about uh, Kennedy's administration, pr- pr- people high up in the administration presented to him and McNamara, Secretary of Defense McNamara, uh, that, um, you know, attempts false flag operations as a pretense to invade Cuba. This is after the Bay of Pigs disaster, where we kind of half-heartedly supported Cuban nationalists living in Florida to invade Cuba to try to get it back from the communists, and they failed miserably. And Kennedy was pretty pissed off about this because the CIA misled him about to what extent these um, soldiers would succeed. They had no chance, as it turns out. And so, uh, you know, he was pretty pissed about this. And so these people said, hey, look, we can do this. We can, you know, shoot down an American a commercial airliner and then blame it on the Cubans. And then and then we'll invade them. <laughs> and there was like a dozen different things like that. You know, we'll, we'll harass people in Miami by flying jets over the airport and making them look like MIG, Russian MIGs and blame it on the Cubans and the Russians and we'll invade. And, you know, to his credit, Kennedy and, and McNamara rejected Operation Northwoods. But when someone like Alex Jones rants on about false flag operations, well, th- that's not completely crazy. It is about Sandy Hook, but it's not completely crazy about, you know, some of the things that um, government agencies like the CIA and FBI do. So my guess is whatever's in those documents that's, you know, a couple tens of thousands of documents left that haven't been revealed related to the Kennedy assassination is probably something more along those lines. Right. This is also something that came uh, that that stood out uh, to me in your book is that there are a lot of of crazy plans, but there's not a lot of crazy execution. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And and the crazy plans are embarrassing and, and maybe we don't want people to do that. But on the other hand, right, if you're really in a kind of heat of war situation, you do want people, you know, thinking out of the box. And and those ideas were discarded, right? Like you said, those ideas were discarded. Yep. So um, that's in the realm of what I call constructive conspiracism. And if we think of it as a signal detection problem, that is, you know, uh, is the signal in the noise real? Or is it just really still noise of some sort, randomness or whatever? And there we can make two kinds of errors, a type one error where you think the rustle in the grass is a dangerous predator. turns out it's just the wind, but that's relatively harmless versus thinking the rustle in the grass is just the wind. It turns out it's a dangerous predator, you know, in your lunch, <laughs> you know, you, know, you get a Darwin <laughs> award for taking yourself out of the gene pool early. So my, my evolutionary argument here is not just to apply to conspiracy theories, but of any kind of signal detection problem, better to err on the side of assuming the worst just in case. So, you know, be a little paranoid, you know, as they say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you because <laughs> sometimes they are right. So, you know, people do bad things. We have a dark side of our human nature. Organizations uh, do try to cheat systems and gain a little unfair advantage as do individuals. You know, just think of athletes. You know, if there were no referees or rules or uh, officials on the field, you know, they would cheat like crazy just because even if they don't want to cheat, just out of fear that the other guy is going to try to gain an unfair advantage. So you have to have a strict set of rules. You got to have somebody to enforce the rules or we know what people will do. Right. You can kind of see this codified uh, in something like medical ethics, right? 
where you want to take excess kind of confirmation and procedures and formalization just to make sure there, there's uh, not like one one fraction of of uh, the possibility that something might go wrong, that there might be uh, malpractice. And, and if there is, then there is just very uh, extreme, very extreme punishment for it. Uh, I, I think... I think this makes quite a bit of sense. Uh, and it, it's interesting, right? Because uh, this kind of, this implies the kind of negativity bias that I think we see, right? It's not just, it's not just like vast conspiracy theories that people are easy to jump on, but really kind of any negative uh, explanation, any kind of enemy, uh, any kind of fight uh, to have. You see this very common in the, in the news cycle nowadays. But uh I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, do Do you think there's a component of this that draws people to conspiracy theories in general, or is it just that is it just that people believe more negative things in general, and then part of that is just that there are more negative conspiracy theories, and that and those get picked up. Yeah, I think it's a combination of that. As I mentioned at the beginning, okay. um, you know, th- there are very few positive conspiracy theories. That is, conspiracy theories with a positive valence to them, where you know people are secretly trying to make the world a better place. <laughs> you know, when people are doing that, like civil rights activists or environmental activists, they're they're doing it any anything but in secret. You know, the whole point is to get out there and spread the word. That's what it means to be a an activist. So um, the negative valence probably has to do with the fact that. The negativity bias is a pretty powerful one in, in cognitive studies. You know, we know that negative emotions are more powerful than positive emotions, like in loss aversion, losses hurt twice yeah. as much as gains feel good. Um, and, you know, there's more uh, adjectives of negative emotional words or uh, words with a negative valence than a positive valence. Uh, things stick in memory longer than are negative. Just think about trolling through your, uh, scrolling through your social media feed <laughs> and, you know, maybe you get a hundred positive likes on something you posted and then, you know, two ne- negative ones. You'll remember the two. Like, who was that guy that posted that? That ah, pisses me off. Who is this? <laughs> look this guy up. <laughs> Whereas the hundreds, you know, the hundred or so positive ones, you're like, oh, that's nice, 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 nice. What? Wait a minute. What is this one? <laughs> right. So the negative ones stand out. And that's true across the board. You know, you have a bad day, it carries on to the next day. But if you have a good day, it doesn't carry on so much the next day. And so on tons of studies about this anal- anal- analysis of diaries, the, the content of diaries is way more negative than positive. You know, positive entries in diaries are very short. Oh, I had a great day today. Uh, but negative entries go on and on. You know, so, and there's a reason for that. And that, that reason is the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. There's just far more ways for things to go wrong than to, to go right. Just for things to run down, energy to dissipate. You know, So the whole... As, as I wrote in a previous book, you know, the, the first, the second law of thermodynamics is the first law of life. That is to carve out a niche of order in a, in a universe that doesn't care about us. It's just running down. It's just the laws of nature just grinding along, doing their thing. They don't care about us. And so it's, uh, you know, every day you have to kind of get up, start over, <laughs> you shower and shave and brush your teeth and, and, and eat something good and work out and make your bed and clean your room and you know, all those things. It's, you know, it's, it's life, it's constant maintenance. And so in terms of conspiracy theories, there's just, you know, far more ways for things that for you know, socially for people to plot things against you or whatever, than there are people secretly trying to do something nice for you. Not that, not that that doesn't happen. It does. But far more ways that far more likely that people are doing things that are probably not good 
in terms of your benefit. So, you know, that's that's the kind of orientation uh, emotionally about conspiracy theories. Would you consider some some kind of religious cults as a as a positive as a positive conspiracy theory, right? If they think that, um, I don't know, because on one hand it's apocalyptic, right? Many of them they think that uh, that the end of uh, that the apocalypse is coming, that they're going to be they're going to be God's chosen people. But at the same time, at least you're God's chosen people, right? It's kind of positive <laughs> in that way. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's let's think about that out loud. Um, you know, there are, you know, cults. Well, okay, let's back up. No one ever joins a cult ever. That's true. Uh, I mean, people join a group that they think is going to be good. You know, my type specimen for that is Jim Jones's uh, church in San Francisco in the seventies. It was very late sixties and early seventies. It was very progressive. I mean, he would today be a social justice warrior. I mean, he was the first to integrate his church a big church in the Bay area, you know, with blacks and whites and Hispanics and, and women. And, you know, it just people of color, minorities, they were helping to man the soup kitchens and helping with the homeless problem. There's pictures of him with celebrities, pictures of Jim Jones with uh, governor Jerry Brown, his first time he was, he was governor of California. So, you know, it's like, yeah, people join that. It's like, this is a cool thing. We're going to really do a good thing here. And they did, you know, and then 15 years later, you're in Guyana drinking the (laughs) Kool-Aid. So what happens? Well, it's, you know, it's a gradual, very slow uh, process where, you know, he gains more and more control over people. He starts to uh, cheat a little bit on his taxes and then he gets a little more uh, money here and there. Then he starts having sex with some of the members and, you know, then drug use. And, you know, before you know it, it you know, not before you know it, but, you know, years down the line, uh, the IRS comes a knock in and the local politicians are investigating. So he takes the whole group down to, to Guyana. And then Congressman Ryan goes down there because they had heard that some of his people in his district were complaining. And so then he gets killed and then that's the end. Okay. So, but, so I, I do think, you know, when bad things happen like that, it's gradual and it's hard to see it, you know, when you're in it and it's the hindsight bias that tells us, oh, they should have known. Well, no, they, how would they know? And um, I think a lot of that is probably true with conspiracy theory. If you're in a conspiracy right? You're part of it. It may be hard to see that, you know, in hindsight, this was a terrible idea, (laughs) right? Um, You know, most people that get busted for, you know, some kind of embezzlement or insider trading or even Bernie Madoff. I mean, he's like the worst of the worst, but, you know, it looks like he started off legitimately and then got a little behind. And so I had to kind of do a little um, uh, kind of a pyramid scheme thing. They take the money from the people coming in to pay people that have been there for a while, and then that just got worse and worse and worse and, you know, went on for what, two and a half decades or so. And, uh, to the point where, you know, you're completely cheating the system. I, I do think it's, it's a slow, for the most part, a slow process. Right. What do you think actually, what do you think recently of the, I'm not sure if you've been following this, but of, uh, the crypto exchanges. Yeah. FTX, FTX collapse. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I thank my lucky stars. I didn't, uh, wasn't too tempted to try that for my investments. I'm, I'm pretty vanilla <laughs> in that, that way. I'm just, you know, in the stock market, that's pretty much it. Uh, pretty mainstream stocks and so on. I, the crypto thing always seemed like, because I couldn't really understand it. You know, and I've, I've seen the TED Talks and the explainers. Here's how it works. Like, yeah, okay. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. And it seemed a little bit of a pyramid scheme-ish kind of thing, but I didn't know enough about it to to want to get involved. And now it looks like the whole thing is a bust. Um, I'm not surprised. I feel bad for the people that, 
you know, went for it, but that's the way it goes, I guess. Right. I'm just reading some of the early reports on uh, on one of the found on the founder of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, and and his kind of business practices. It was it was very interesting because he's also he's also involved with uh, effective altruism. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I am. Yeah, and so there there is a kind of. I think there was this one article that talked about, uh, or no, it wasn't an article. It was a tweet, a tweet thread by someone. I think Sam Hammond who talked about uh, the the psychology of uh, of crime and of organized crime, where people people kind of get some kind of permission structure from uh, certain environments, and that's the environment in crypto was particularly particularly. Um, uh, permissive of this, at least at the beginning. Uh, I'm not sure. It, that does seem like a consistent pattern, right? Maybe this is deviating from the subject of conspiracy. No, no, I, I, but, I, I, yeah. this is interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, you, yeah, you see this kind of pattern with Madoff and with, uh, I think, with Sam Bankman-Fried and with many other people, right? Um, uh, the the WeWork CEO, um, Elizabeth Holmes, mm. the CEO of Theranos, both, both kind of companies that... Uh, went bust and went, uh, or WeWork did not completely go bust, but um, companies that at least uh, certainly engaged in some uh, in some uh, malicious behavior, right? And you have all these situ- situations where I think the the common pattern is they genuinely believe it, right? They kind of buy their own they kind of buy their own narrative, and that's what that's what gets them in this kind of loop, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, here, I think we should watch out for the hindsight bias. We know what happened with Theranos, for example. So, you know, you're a fool if you if you believed her bullshit. But what if it wasn't? What if she was the next Steve Jobs? You know, she famously dressed up in those turtlenecks and (laughs) and kind of cast her voice to be a little deeper to sound like Steve Jobs and so on and presented herself as like the next Steve Jobs. What if she was? And, and you were one of the insiders and you, you know, now you're a billionaire and man, that's cool. You, it's like, you'd be one of the people that backed Google or Apple or Facebook or, you know, any of these. And it's like, you, you get to cash in. So the hindsight bias is dangerous this way because in fact, most startups don't succeed. Right. And I've written a little bit about this. You know, I have a venture capitalist friend, roughly speaking, back of the envelope calculation, you know, they hear a hundred pitches and they fund one of them to the tune of millions of dollars to help the company grow. Then out of the hundred, if they if they fund a hundred, you know, to the tune of millions of dollars, maybe one gets an IPO where it turns out to be a, a Facebook, a Google, a huge payoff. And the venture capitalist company gets a gigantic payoff to cover all those losses of the other you know, hundred that they, 99 that they funded that didn't go anywhere. Or they, you know, they didn't necessarily go bust, but they're just kind of struggling, trying to make a, a profit a little bit here and there. And maybe one day they'll get big. So it's a long shot. And, um, you know, the chances of anybody, not just Elizabeth Holmes making it, and her attitude of like, well, I'm just going to bullshit these investors until I make it, you know, fake it till you make it. You know, that there is a culture of that apparently in Silicon Valley. You know, you, you, you yeah, sit for before sure. <laughs> a, a group of investors, you're, you, you know, you don't want to couch in some Bayesian probability. Well, chances are I'll probably fail, but, you know, let's go for it. You know, you got to say, oh, my God, I am the next Steve Job. This is the next big thing. This is the next iPhone. This is the next whatever. And, you know, if you didn't do that, you, maybe and you'd probably have to believe it yourself. 
you know, there are studies on entrepreneurs and high risk takers like this. They, they do tend to be highly self-deceptive in a way that they have to be, you know, over-optimism bias, it's called. You know, when, when most of us would cut and run and, and cut our losses and get out, uh, they, they don't. They keep pushing on and on and on. Most of them just lose everything. But a few of them succeed anyway. And then you go, aha, you see, you should just push through. <laughs> uh, and, but, but really that's only when in hindsight, I call this the biography bias after, um, right. Walter that's Isaacson's a good one. That's biography. A good one. Yeah. yeah. After Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve jobs, you know, which you know, millions of people read this book, everybody's going through it to find out what's the secret sauce, you know? Okay. You go to a, <laughs> an elite liberal arts college, you drop out early, you move back to your parents' house, you do a startup company in the garage with your buddies. And the next thing, you know, <laughs> you know, you're a, you're a gazillionaire and you act like a complete asshole and treat your employees like crap. And that's the way to be. It's like, <laughs> You know, I mean, how many people, so Bill Gates famously dropped out of Harvard early and, oh, there must be something there. No, no, there's nothing there. It's just complete randomness. You're just picking the winners. And, you know, what about all the guys in the seventies, early seventies that moved, dropped out of college, went back to their parents' house, smoked pot and and did a company in the garage and they went nowhere. Well, we don't even know who they are because no one writes biographies of them. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna link this in the in the show notes for my audience. I'm sure I'm sure you've seen this, right? The picture of the plane and and the bullet holes. Yes, yes so yes, they that's did. A good one. That's I a think good one, yes. was it the British government who did the study of uh, returning planes to see where they were damaged, and of course the bullet holes were all in uh, damaged areas where the plane was fine because the plane returned, right? So so you get this <laughs> right. kind of study that studies maybe the opposite of what you're actually trying to, what you're trying to find out of where you should protect the plane better. Uh, and, and that'll yeah. be in the, that'll be in the show notes. So yeah, that's a, yeah, that's I think a great, it's a great example. This is right. I think though, in, going back to the topic of conspiracy theories, there is this kind of like venture capital effect, right? Or this expected value effect where if it's like, if, if it's true that um, say like, uh, there, the country is run by like a cabal of pedophiles, right? If it's true, then th- that's there's like a big deal there, right? It is a very big kind of impactful thing, and so even if there, even if it's maybe only a one in one hundred chance, even if people have doubts, then be- because there's so much of a there's so much of an expected impact if they do kind of like fight this fight this metaphorical war or in some cases real war, uh, right? Real conflict. Then, then there's something that they expect to, there's some good that they expect to come of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, so, you know, the Pizzagate thing is an interesting one, you know, that Hillary and other leading Democrats and celebrities are running a secret uh, satanic pedophile ring out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's so far out. How could anybody believe it? Well, one guy did, Edgar Welch. He went there with his gun, which in a way you would do if there was really a crime going on and no one was doing anything about it and you wanted to, you know, just to, to do something. And we know that's what he was thinking because he made a video with his with his iPhone driving there, three and a half hour drive from his house to this uh, Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C. And he's you know, telling his daughters on his iPhone, you know, hey, uh, I'm going in. I'm doing this. I would do this for you. If somebody was molesting you, I would I would step in. And so I'm going in to break up this crime. But most people don't do that. So that to right. me, that tells me they don't really believe it in the same way that we normally use that word. It's more, again, a kind of a proxy conspiracy theory. It stands for something else. I don't like those Democrats that, that Hillary Clinton and the Clinton, I don't trust them. You know, maybe the pizza thing is not real, but there's something bad about them, you know, that I don't like them. It's more of that, I think. 
Yeah, this this goes to a point. This goes to a point that I wrote down. And I wasn't sure whether this ties in a lot, but if you kind of already believe, there's a sort of path dependency here, where if you already believe a bunch of things, then the we we talked about the we talked about the probability uh, calculations, both kind of explicit and intuitive before. But there is a point where if you have enough priors, then that kind of reverses, right? For example, Nassim Taleb has this example where if someone flips a coin and it's heads 50 times in a row, then you should stop believing that it's a fair coin. It, it's kind of like <laughs> a similar thing, right? If you already right. believe that, you know, if you already believe that the world is uh, distorted and there are all of these ways that people are already um, maliciously covering up things and getting away with uh, crimes or, uh, or conspiracies, then th- there's, a, there's a point where it actually kind of makes sense. Right. There, there's a point where if, if you're already taking the fir- first like 50 things for granted, then then the 51st thing uh, is actually that's, that's actually the right choice. And there's like a runaway. There's like a runaway effect with that. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I, hadn't, I haven't thought of it in that context. Path dependency. I think that's a good analogy because we do know from surveys that people tick the uh, tick a box for one conspiracy theory are more likely to tick a whole bunch of boxes. And yeah. people that are. Uh, you know, are shy on uh, assuming conspiracy theories are real, tend not to believe very many of them at all. So, yeah, you do get that effect. Um, like the, my favorite st- uh, study I wrote about, it's called a paper called Dead and Alive, that people that tick the box that Princess Diana was murdered are also more likely to think she faked her death and she's alive somewhere. <laughs> You know, with, uh, with Dodi Fayed and Elvis and Marilyn and so forth. Uh, you know, so what is it? They, they, they're not dumb. They can't possibly believe both those things. So it's something else. It's this kind of, I don't trust any kind of authority. Whatever the government tells me this happened, I just don't believe it. And so they don't believe she was killed. They don't believe she faked her. They, they believe she was, she was murdered. She didn't die naturally. She faked her death. You know, something bad happened. Something happened. And I don't trust the, the actual explanation from the authority. So it's something like that. And yeah, I like the path dependency, which once you start going down that path of not trusting authorities, then you could expand that from government agencies to say scientific institutions, which we've seen a lot on, on the right with COVID-19 and vaccines. And I've always found it curious um, why there's vaccine hesitancy or vaccine denial, but there is nothing like that for, uh, for antibiotics. You know, antibiotics are drugs that pharmaceutical companies make and sell and make a profit on. So why isn't anybody upset about it that way? And it's, you're taking a kind of poison into your body to combat a germ. Why isn't there concerns about that? But there's something about vaccines that's different and I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's because it involves needles or, you know, because it resembles the substance that you are trying to avoid. That doesn't feel right intuitively. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, and this is very this is very much the case with like the ivermectin stuff, right? Like, I remember that there was there there was this paper uh, I forgot I forget who it was by, um, but there was this very early like very positive paper um, by on ivermectin by this guy whose data table was just like the same like seven rows copied over and over again, mm. and you you like look at that. And you think, well, you had all of this skepticism, maybe correct skepticism, right, from uh, from some vaccine skeptics on the some of the original vaccine papers, right, and some of the original data, and then you just have like the split screen, right, of, of this other of this other data set that is just you know comedically comedically bad, and uh, yeah, the, the lack of just applying those standards evenly, I think, is is, is pretty indicative of these things. 
Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Ivermectin. Right. Yeah. Whatever happened with that? <laughs> yeah, so uh, something, something else that is quite interesting, I think is, uh, I think in uh, chapter three, you, you quoted some other researchers saying uh, when individuals are unable to gain a sense of control objectively, they'll try to gain it perceptually. Right. So that uh, th- there's a relationship between people basically being very anxious and very feeling like they're not able to control their own life. Mm-hmm. And uh, that right. being a motivator of conspiracy theories. Right. So, you know, nothing in human behavior is, has a single cause. So yeah, for sure. even in cons- conspiracy theories is multi-causal and there's lots of factors going on. Yeah. So it appears that um, anxiety, feeling out of control or having a high external locus of control, you think things happen to you rather than you make things happen for yourself. People that are more internal locus from control um, are less anxious about uh, environments, feel more in control, that they can change things to make their life better, uh, are less likely to believe conspiracy theories. Yeah. So there's a pretty good body of research on that that has been replicated well and survived the replication crisis. So that was good. And I have a discussion of that in, in the conspiracy book. Uh, but of course, not the only factor. I mean, some, and there's variation of how, how people uh, act and feel on that. Uh, dimension. So, um, but they get nudged in other ways. If it's a political tribal conspiracy theory, maybe they embrace it anyway, regardless of their lack of control. So, you know, there's intervening variables there. Right. This might be a fun question. What is the ideal amount of conspiracy theorists to have in your society? <laughs> That's interesting. Yes, I do. I do think there should be definitely should be some. Just like I think there should be, um, let's just say, people that challenge the mainstream theory in anything. You know, I mean, this is what I do for a living. Basically, is study people on the fringes of of any uh, institution, any scientific theory. I'm I'm glad they're there just in case. I was just thinking about this this morning, watching Graham Hancock's first episode of his new eight part Netflix series on ancient apocalypse. It's called. It's about <laughs> you know, it's about his lifelong theories had about you know that long before the ancient Egyptians and Babylonians and so on, there was an advanced. Uh, civilization, maybe 20, 30,000 years before them, you know, that during the ice age, it's a pretty extraordinary claim. And uh, unfortunately for him, the evidence is not extraordinary in support of it, but he does point out a lot of problems, anomalies, weird things that mainstream archeologists and prehistorians cannot explain. And you know, he wears this T-shirt called uh, that says uh, "Stuff just keeps getting older." One of his little catchphrases, and he's right <laughs> that, that has that has been the case. I think not as older as he thinks it it should be or is, but but it's it is moving in that direction. So I'm I'm actually glad to have Graham Hancock in the world challenging the mainstream archaeologists because they you know they're not gods they don't know they're not omniscient they don't know and they operate from uncertainty and you know it's you know, these mainstream institutionalized scientific um, fields are by kind of construction, very conservative and cautious. They're risk averse. You know, if you want to get something published, you have to, it has to be original, but not too crazy, (laughs) not too far (laughs) out there. Yeah. So the, you know, these fields grow incrementally and that's fine. And one reason for that is that most new ideas that people come up with are wrong. You know, so, I mean, Graham is a little conspiratorial, like, you know, they, they, they won't let me do this or they won't pay attention here or there, even though he's incredibly famous. So it's not like he's been completely ignored. And pretty much every archaeologist I know knows who he is. 
But um, it's not that it's a conspiracy against them. It's that the entire system is constructed to be very skeptical of any, uh, you know, really way out of, say, three to six standard deviations away from the mean of accepted dogma. You know, just like if somebody, you know, there's big bang skeptics still. There aren't many, but there's a few. And, you know, it's okay. I, to me, it's okay that they're around. You know, yeah, yeah, let's give us your best arguments. And let's see why the people that believe the Big Bang Theory, why why is it they do they do believe that? And here's their 10 arguments or whatever it is, right? So it's good to challenge archaeologists to say, well, you know, that Gobekli Tepe, you know, that looks to be like 10, 11,000 years old. Um, you know, how do you explain those mo- monumental uh, arc structures there, these gigantic T-shaped uh, with um, bas-relief on the side and these things weigh like 30 tons? How is it hunter-gatherers did that? Now, you know, Graham's answer is they didn't. It was this advanced civilization that lived tens of thousands of years before. But my answer is, why not give more credit to the hunter-gatherers than we used to? We used to think of them as kind of a bigotry of low expectations. All these poor, dumb hunter-gatherers, you know, they, they, they don't know what they're doing. They don't have the engineering wherewithal. They don't have enough people to move the big blocks of stone and so on. But maybe they, they did to know something we didn't know. <laughs> Maybe they're smarter than we give them credit for. You know, that's kind of my take. So, but, but I'm glad to have somebody like him pushing that. So conspiracy theories. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to have investigative journalists that, you know, poke around in government agencies and, uh, and, and, and submit, you know, FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests that get this information because, you know, otherwise we wouldn't know about Intel Pro or MK Ultra or Operation Paperclip or, you know, all these different programs that our government was doing. We wouldn't know about Abu Ghraib or Milai. You know, there's a lot of uh, kind of dark aspects to these things and we wouldn't know if it wasn't for people like that that we're skeptical and poking around. So it's, it's really your larger question is how many skeptics do we need? And the answer is a lot. <laughs> right, right. Skepti- skepticism is a virtue. Yeah. And I think the game theory of this uh, tilts towards basically conspiracy theories or conspiracy theorists also serve as a check on the ambition of actual conspiracies. Right. Because um, of course, Nixon, or maybe not conspiracy theorists, but basically uh, people who are uh, very suspicious of these things, uh, something like uh, the Nixon, um, something like the Nixon investigation uncovered a lot of other uh, misconduct, right? They uncovered some of Spiro Agnew's, um, Spiro Agnew's uh, bribery. Mm, uh, mm. Yeah, so that's right. Whenever there's these kind of suspicions, right? Maybe they're not exactly right. But there's some there's there's some probability that they'll actually do some good by uncovering something that actually was there. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, that's how we find out about these things. When someone becomes prominent, you know, people come out of the woodwork, as we saw with Herschel Walker. You know, had he not <laughs> had he not run for office and he was just you know doing his thing, whatever, uh, those women probably wouldn't have come forward. But you know, you put yourself out there as a public figure that publicly denounces abortion and then it comes to light that, you know, you paid for women's abortions. Well, you're calling attention to yourself. That's how it works. <laughs> that's too bad. But yeah, again, that's how we find out about things like that. The more famous somebody is or the, the bigger the event again, nine 11, that would be, if, if that was, if that was an inside job, this would be probably the biggest story in the history of the country. And, 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 and so where are the people that would want to be in on that? Like, oh, my God, this is the biggest story. And I know who did it. I know this guy. You know, I used to date this guy and he told me that his friend did it. OK, <laughs> but we have nothing like that. 
So that tells me it's it's that that's not a true conspiracy theory. Yeah, and especially documents. I think like that's the you know that's the gold standard. Uh, something. Yeah, going back to the the relationship with psychological traits, I think that this we we have all of these kind of biases that we describe in terms of uh, being very uh, costly on the individual level, right? Or being at least somewhat costly on the individual level. Uh, but I think there's some, or, or there's a case to be made that uh, almost all of them are uh, beneficial if if present in some percent of the population, right? So we have, like we already talked about, we have the uh, the risk aversion, which is which is pretty often beneficial in the kind of late uh, or in the kind of pre uh, pre civilizational era, right? And yeah, you you do get many of these cases where I think many of these biases. Uh, this is something that I've kind of had to come to slowly as well as someone who was uh, more involved with the rationalists before someone mm. who is really kind of um, rethinking these things. Um, how, and I think that taking that kind of approach to conspiracy theories is maybe more realistic. So when we were thinking about conspiracy theories in society, uh, what's the best way to kind of predict or to kind of, uh, uh, kind of guide ourselves in thinking uh, which conspiracy theories are maybe the most negative or most detrimental uh, to society, which ones maybe have some positive externalities. How, how do we uh, assess that? Mm. Yeah, well, that's the hard problem, right? <laughs> what's yes, the algorithm that we apply? <laughs> Uh, what's the algorithm that we apply? And there's no general one that applies to all conspiracy. It depends on the particular conspiracy theory of how to think about it rationally. But generally, if you have that kind of broad signal detection grid where you have the two types of errors, type one, type two, and then you have the two other boxes that, you know, you got a hit or a correct rejection, those are good. That's what we want to, uh, but it depends on the particular conspiracy theory to decide what kind of evidence would change your priors so that your credence for and against (laughs) it would change. And that depends. Again, there should be some sort of paper trail. I remember, you know, I mean, I watched, I had Oliver Stone on my podcast and, you know, I watched his four hours of document, the latest documentary about JFK, you know, when he he tries pretty much tries to implicate Alan Dulles in the CIA and because Kennedy was not crazy about the Alan Dulles and CIA because they misled him on the Bay of Pigs thing. And he and he famously kind of mumbled a line. I'd like to break that CIA up into a thousand pieces, you know. But, you know, people grumble and mumble stuff all the time. Doesn't mean they're going to do it. But, you know, conspiracy theorists glom onto that. And OK, but if if so, let's just say if you wanted to haul, let's say, Alan Dulles is still alive and still around and we're going to haul him before a grand jury so we can put him on trial. Do you have enough evidence for a grand jury to go? Yes, we, we should proceed with a trial. And the answer is no, there's no paper trail. There's nothing direct that to implicate him, uh, Alan Dulles or anyone in the CIA or the FBI you know, or the KGB or, you know, whatever, but all the evidence, you know, points to um, Oswald acting alone. So it's not that, it, 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 there couldn't have been other conspiracies. There could have been, you know, again, as you pointed out that at the start, you know, you could have had maybe three or four people, you know, reporting to one guy or maybe two people, you know, and, and that's possible to pull that off. But 
there's no evidence of that. I mean, if there was something, right. anything, a memo, a document, something, but we, we just have nothing. So there, you know, we should tilt on the side of skepticism, you know, just keep an open mind. You know, this is my attitude about JFK. I'm pretty sure Oswald acted alone and the story, but not, you know, my mind isn't closed and maybe this new tranche of documents when it's released will reveal, oh my God, turns out Alan Dulles was involved. Look, here's a memo from him to so-and-so saying, you know, okay, we're going to have somebody there on the grassy knoll at Dealey Plaza and somebody else behind the fence and somebody else on the other side of the, of the um, quad there and so on. If that was the case, I would change my mind instantly, but you know, we don't have anything like that yet. Right. I think that I'm going at maybe even a harder problem here, right? Is that you can kind of be, be factually wrong, but uh, your actions can still m- maybe have positive consequences, right? One, one example that I had in a recent article is that even though I think that the people who uh, who think that George Soros is intentionally trying to destroy the country are almost certainly wrong, uh, that they're also that they're also if they're just voting, right? If they're just peacefully voting against Soros candidates, then that they, that there might be a positive effect. On the country overall, particularly mm-hmm. with regards to uh, crime in San Francisco, I think the case that uh, murders went up under uh, many uh, Soros-supported uh, Soros candidates, Soros-supported uh, district attorneys, like that's, I mean, just at the, at the correlational level, right, that's just true. Uh, whether it's causal, I think that there's actually a fairly strong case for that. Now, I don't think that's because Soros is intentionally trying to destroy the country. I think he just has some misguided ideas about crime and, and open societies. But that's there's this kind of um, that there's kind of kind of this unintentional. Uh, there's people supporting basically good policies for the wrong reasons, right? They they think Soros is this kind of incredibly evil, maliciously intentioned guy. They they vote against the candidates, but uh, you know, as long as they don't do anything, they don't do anything violent, as long as they're just peacefully voting and maybe campaigning and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. passing out, passing out uh, uh, brochures or like knocking on doors, you know, normal politics stuff, then that's actually like a net net positive for society, right? So I, I think that there are these kind of cases where um, conspiracy theories are not just, um, are not just like harmless, but are actually like, they have, like I said, positive externalities. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, since you mentioned George Soros, you could just take the Koch brothers on the other side or the DeVos family money funding. Yeah, yeah. this is this uh, is exactly the right way to think of it. I mean, it. It, it's not a conspiracy in the sense that they're they're pretty open about it. Yeah, yeah, we're going to fund uh, candidates that we like. We want to help them win because they believe what we believe. Are they going to get judges that we want to overturn Roe v. Wade or whatever? There's no secret about it. All right? It's like this Federalist Society that uh, kind of gives the nod to presidents of who the best candidates would be for Supreme Court justices. I'm pretty convinced that uh, had uh, Jeb Bush won or Ted Cruz won and the same uh, Supreme Court justices died or retired, it, we, we would have the same judges we have now under a Cruz presidency or a Bush presidency in 2016 because there's no secret there. It's just uh, there's no conspiracy. They're just openly uh, endorsing certain people that, you know, will have their agenda or the Christian nationalists. I mean, the stuff they do behind closed <laughs> doors, you know, these kind of prayer breakfasts and have, they're not that secret, right? I mean, you know, politicians that attend these prayer breakfasts, they're, they're doing it for a reason. They want those votes and the people that are giving them money want their, uh, want their political actions to support their beliefs. And so, you know, when Soros funds, 
groups on the left. He's just doing what the other side does. I don't see that as a kind of nefarious thing. I see that as kind of politics as usual in America. Right, right. Yeah, this is also something that annoys me as well when people misuse uh, the term conspiracy theory, I think. Or I don't know, do you consider this a misuse because we did talk about true conspiracy earlier? That yeah, when, not a, when people right, are doing right. things out in the open, right? Like we'll, like many people I know on the conservative side will talk about there's a coordinate, coordinated campaign against Elon Musk uh, because of basically, uh, in, in their view, because he is reducing the amount of censorship right from the from the left-wing view it might be because he's allowing uh misinformation or something like that right but that there there is just this is at at this point well reported and and the organizations that are doing it are like publicly claiming of doing this right publicly they want to organize a boycott or like a or like an advertiser attack so on and so forth this is something that's like completely out in the open completely transparent Right. Uh, so, so would you, first of all, would you consider that, uh, would you consider that a conspiracy theory or just, you know, like a, you know, an open plan? Yeah, probably more of the open plan. But I mean, yeah. by definition, conspiracies, you know, two or more people plotting in secret to do something to a third party or, or a group mm, right. uh, that's illegal and moral or whatever to take advantage, get an advantage over them. That happens all the time. Uh, again, mostly small scale. Uh, when people are doing it more in the open, I suppose maybe though, if, the previous Twitter um, people running the company had, I guess, behind closed doors, arranged the algorithms to censor more people on the right than the left. If it turned out that was the case, I just saw Eric Weinstein posting a tweet last night to, uh, to Elon saying, I'll pay eight bucks a month if, you, if you'll turn over the, uh, the, the algorithms that the old people used to use. Uh, I, but it's not clear that there even is such a thing, <laughs> that that actually happened. But you know, people on the right feel like they were getting censored more on Twitter. Maybe they were. I don't know. But you know, we just what, what's the inside information? Probably it's more randomness and selection bias and availability heuristic and, and, and recency effects and things like that. But maybe, you know, that if it turned out that there was such a thing, that would be a kind of conspiracy. Although I suppose since Twitter's a, you know, was a, is a company, they can do what they want. It's uh, you know, you don't have to be part of Twitter if you don't want to be. Whereas if it was the government doing something like that, that would be more nefarious because of laws that are protecting our freedom of speech and so on. Yeah, it's yeah, illegally, legally, it's not uh, as or like legally, I'm not sure if it's even illegal, right? Or I don't think it's illegal at all. But from from my knowledge, but uh, yeah, I think morally, morally, it's still quite bad. But uh, I think the thing, the thing with algorithms with especially the types of algorithms that are are used at Google, and I'm pretty sure Twitter uses something uh, quite, quite similar is that these kind of predictive algorithms, these kind of algorithms that train on large data sets, it's, it's quite impossible to tell because you can sort of have basically just a hundred different data transformations and have, and they each have various uh, empirical effects. Uh, most of the time, if an algorithm is biased in this way, it's not, it's not biased in that people are like tagging things as conservative and then, uh, and and then you know you you just like set the algorithm to like explicitly ban things that are conservative. Although maybe that happens on the kind of more human level, right? Maybe there are directives there, and and there are things in the kind of to to go back and kind of blur the lines a little bit with the open uh, versus versus uh, the kind of open planning versus secret stuff, right? There there are like open policies on Twitter about, for example, uh, banning people who use uh, a transgender person's original name. 
right? That, that's kind of like very public, very public uh, left correlated uh, censorship. But at the same time, it's also it's also you know it, it's public, right? It's not it's not very secret at all. On the on the other hand, I think with many of these algorithms, or I've worked with these. This is kind of my day job, right? I've worked worked with many of these algorithms. In the past, there there are many kind of just data transforms that you can apply that basically mm. will pick up on something, right? And maybe something in the language patterns, maybe something in the kind of social networks and the frequency, maybe the hours that people use that conservatives versus liberals use at any given point in time. That can that can kind of bias the data or bias the recommendations in a way that is like indistinguishable from just like random noise. And and also I should point out that that it could also just actually be random noise. Right, you can have various algorithms that just correlate. Right, they might be something. Let's say you have something that prefers like, and and I don't know the data on this. This is just a hypothetical. But let's say you have something that prefers like longer videos on YouTube, right? And let's say that like conservatives make longer videos than liberals Mm. on YouTube. That's obviously Mm -hmm. going to have a a correlation there, where where it seems like bias, right? Or in the other direction, right? I don't know. I don't actually know. uh, Yeah, I remember a couple years ago, Dennis Prager, the conservative radio talk show host who makes those PragerU videos. um, I think he actually sued Google, well, Alphabet, for because YouTube was um, like screening out a number of his PragerU videos. And I think that lawsuit was dismissed. I think he, I think it was something like what you described. It was something, some other algorithm that was tagging his videos, not because he was conservative, uh, but for some other reason. I forget the details on that. But, but, but again, you've perfectly articulated the signal detection problem with that. Well, of course, anybody yeah. that's posting stuff, and if there's some something goes awry, you think somebody in there, those libtards are up to no good again, <laughs> right? Uh, when in fact it was just randomness. Yeah, and, and I think the be- best example of this, the, the kind of most ironic, sad example of this is, is with uh, the GOP fundraising emails getting sent to spam. Like, mm. you read them, you read them, and, you know, everyone who listens to this podcast knows that I'm not particularly uh, sympathetic to left-wingers, but, like, you just read these emails, and it's like, you you should, if you read the emails, you should have a rough idea of why they're being sent to spam. Let's just say that the, <laughs> the wording, spam. the wording, well, in all well, caps. The right does, the right yeah. does that just as, just as much. I mean, I just saw a Ben Shapiro posted one yesterday from Trump announcing, you know, next Tuesday he's got a big announcement to make. And if you give five bucks, you'll get to be in a drawing for somebody that gets to go to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is actually... what I'm saying, right? There's a reason why the right wing, the right wing emails are sent to spam more. At least, like the current current right wing candidates right. are sent to spam more. Uh, right. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, does anybody actually believe if I send Trump five bucks, I'm going to get to go to Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's a reasonable kind of lottery thing, right? There there have been people, or there I'm not sure if there have been political candidates, but there have been. Um, there have been like companies who have done this, right? That that mm. give large amounts of products uh, to people. It, it doesn't seem like completely. I, I guess that's true. The moment I said that, I realized you know the the, the lottery just hit what two two over two billion dollars uh, that that guy in Altadena won. And, oh my goodness! Uh, yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, the chances of you or I or anybody one person winning it was you know like three hundred million to one. But yeah, people yeah, exactly. still did it. 
they still do it. So I guess when I asked, do they really believe they get, get to go to Mar-a-Lago if they give Trump five bucks? Maybe they do actually believe it. Maybe it's a, it's a, a you know, just a, if you don't play, you don't win. You can't win if you don't play kind of attitude. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, there is something about that kind of, um, that kind of hope I mean, I'm not familiar with the lottery, the psychology of lotteries, but that does seem kind of familiar with some of these conspiracy theories, right? Uh, that there is some kind of hope that's there, that there's some kind of like off chance that they might be, that they might be onto something big, that kind of thing. Oh, for sure. Uh, one of the, mo- you know, again, more uh, factors in conspiracy beliefs is that they're engaging. I mean, it, it, it gives the person uh, some sense of like, uh, I'm in on this secret knowledge or like, Oh my God, I've uncovered this, this terrible thing that's going on. And it's, it's super engaging. I worked on this show on Netflix on brainwashing. And we found this woman in Texas who kind of went down the rabbit hole of QAnon. And, you know, before that, before the, uh, the pandemic shut everything down, she was a, success, a successful entrepreneur, ran her own PR company, a very good looking woman, married with kids, had the big mansion in Texas and college degree that, you know, every, she had everything, right? Then she got bored, went down the, when her company got shut down during COVID, went down the QAnon rabbit hole. And then to the point where her husband uh, said, it's, it's me and the kids or QAnon. And she said, I took QAnon. And I oh, told it, ne- ne- she, she wised up and went back to her family. But, but it, before that, she, she explained uh, to us what, why. And it was like, she says, I told my husband, this is the most important thing I will ever do in my life. You know, uh, outside of this, I'm just have a boring, normal life. I just go off to work, take the kids to school, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's just, you know, kind of a regular boring life. But here, here I've discovered there's a deep state. And oh my God, I can be part of this whole movement. We're going to expose the deep state and the pedophile ring and Trump's going to, you know, have all these arrests and the indictments are coming. And oh my God, I'm part of this, you know, and you could see it in her voice, like in her face, like, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> I can see why people get engaged with this, you know, and, and they're also entertaining because a lot of yes, the big conspiracy yes, theories, important. they're like a they're like a movie, like, oh, my God, this is so cool. This is so interesting. And you go down that rabbit hole. And yeah, that's that's also part of it, because most of our lives are pretty boring. Right. We just get up, go to work, take the kids to school or whatever. You know, it's nothing particularly big. And and few of us are in a position to do anything about problems in society. You know, if you're not a politician or a police chief or I don't know, somebody who's a ma- major influencer, what what can I do? Right. So I think this is one of the motivations of like the BLM protesters and Antifa and the Proud Boys, you know, both on the left and the right. You know, we know from some of those um, uh, uh, January 6th insurrectionists, you know, they were da- down there saying, this is our 1776 moment. You know, I, I'm like George Washington. I'm like Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> this is it. We're starting a new country. This is going to be massive. It's going to be huge, you know, as compared to their normal lives, which is nothing like that. And uh, even yesterday, the Proud Boys guy that's on trial, uh, or did he, was he convicted? Yeah, I think he was convicted. You know, he he actually said, I felt this, I uh, was like the American Revolution again. I get to be part of this. And, you know, what could be bigger and more exciting and engaging than that? Right. It is kind of, it is very much like a movie, like uh, something that I think I wrote in an article a long time ago was uh, the plot of every James Bond movie is a conspiracy theory. Yes, right. right. Yeah. Right. And 
actually, let's dwell on this this topic for a bit. Do you think that these types of movies increase the salience of conspiracy theories, or that they're just like taking advantage of the same kind of impulses, the same kind? Oh, of probably, pro- probably more of the latter, but it certainly okay. doesn't doesn't hurt to fuel it. Uh, yeah, when you watch those kind of movies, it, it they're so realistic. I mean, just take Oliver Stone's JFK. Uh, I, I mean, oh, yeah, this true. has been so dissected and debunked. It's you know, it's, it's, there's nothing in there really of any value. But it's so well done that you can't help but watch it and come away thinking, okay, there just has to be something. You know, whether this part of it is true or that part of it is true, I don't know. But there's certainly got to be a second shooter, which means conspiracy. And so then who's in on it? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. The military industrial complex, the CIA was part of this, you know, maybe the KGB, Russians, Cubans, you know, all the people that didn't like Kennedy and so on. You can't help but uh, just just be moved by that, you know, back into the left, you know, Kevin Costner's character back into the left. And that's what it looks like until you have somebody that knows what they're looking at, you know, to the, and, and, and again, I mean, let's dissect this for a second, you know, like we all get our, our kind of internal folk physics about gunshot wounds and reactions from the movies where someone is shot and they, they fly backwards, you know, or they, <laughs> Yeah, but that isn't what happens. The bullet is so tiny. It's just a few grams and it just goes right through your body and you, your body doesn't do anything. You know, like when that uh, producer, that director was shot and killed by um, uh, Alec Baldwin on that set. You know, she didn't fly backwards. She didn't collapse. She just sat there and went, oh, crap. I think I've been shot. You know, it's and that's what happens. You know, Kennedy's head didn't go back into the left because of the bullet. It ultimately because uh, of his back spasms as a result of the bullet going through. And you can see in the Zabruder film, his brains and blood actually splatter up and forward which is what would happen if the bullet came from behind, not the grassy knoll in front. Anyway, so, you know, there's a lot of that kind of thing. But it, but back to your original point, in the, the movie is so dramatically done, you just it just it just pushes you in that direction. So, yeah, that, that definitely is part of it. Right. And do uh, you know of this phenomenon of alternate reality games? Um, vaguely. Right. So uh, for the audience as well, an alternate reality game, uh, actually, I talked with uh, John As- uh, Ascanis about this as well. He has this article called Reality is Just a Game Now about hmm. the kind of incentives of online behavior and really the power of these kind of alternate reality games or these kind of uh, conspiracy theories where everyone is participating. You're not only, you know, watching a movie, but you're also like at least playing a role. You're playing some kind of minor role in it, right? You're putting together all of the hints and clues and secrets. Mm. And you're working together with people who you met, who are who are your friends now, and who believe the same things as you. This kind of whole uh, participatory environment um, that the internet has enabled is there. Is, is there any kind of uh, evidence to show that that is 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 linked to uh, the conspiracy theories that we have nowadays? Interesting. I don't know. I, I I know so little about that world. Is this something like Dungeons and Dragons, or more like one of those uh, somewhat, escape actually? Yeah, I did. or those escape rooms. I have done uh, uh, escape rooms. You know, when you're actually physically in this room and you're trying to get out, and you and your buddies are you know l- looking at the different clues, trying to piece them together. Those are pretty fun. Yeah, uh, I guess I I don't know, but I would if I had to speculate, it would be people that are you know, kind of patternicity, people that are really good at connecting yes, the yes. dots. 
<laughs> uh, maybe it would be better at figuring those things out. But again, you have that signal detection problem, which, you know, which clues are the real ones or, or intentionally planted for misdirection. And a lot of conspiracy theories have that element of misdirection or, you know, you're an agent of misinformation. Um, you know, the, 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 we've seen this with the UAP UFO phenomenon that, you know, are we really seeing something or is the government, you know, releasing these videos to, to distract us from what's really going on. Right? So you have this kind of debate in UFO circles mm. about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that uh, I suppose people that are really into online gaming reality programs, as you just described, maybe they'd be more susceptible to conspiracy theories. That would make an interesting study. I don't know of anybody that's done that study, but that would be an interesting database of people that do that. You just get it, I suppose, through self-report data from asking people how many online games do you play and then which of these conspiracy theories do you believe something like that would be an interesting study yeah and this kind of this this kind of part, uh, participatory aspect i think is particularly uh Im important i think uh incentivizing yeah what it does is incentivize patternicity right it doesn't really matter if you're if the if the dots that you're connecting are true or false, right? It's just, uh, if you make that kind of connection, if you if you can argue for it in a compelling way, uh, then, then there's this reward that happens when people are kind of in that kind of community, right? So... Yeah, yeah, this just reminds me of that comment yesterday made by Mark, Chap Mark David Chapman, the guy that shot John Lennon dead. You know, he said, I wanted to be famous. I, I just I, I just wanted so badly for people to know who I am and to be somebody. And I was a nobody. And, mm. you know, we know from uh, school shooters that that's one of the motives. They tell us I'm a nobody and now I'm a somebody. And, you know, and there's there's that element, you know, kind of put you on a pedestal. Maybe not the kind you'd want, but certainly it, it does have that effect. Right. Do you, do you know if that kind of desire for fame has increased uh, throughout time? I don't, probably not. I mean, I think that's a human desire, status seeking, you know, in men, uh, it's status amongst other men. It, uh, you know, you want to impress women, whatever. Um, that's a, a pretty strong drive for sure. A motivator for, I mean, some evolutionary psychologists think it's one of the driving forces behind creativity, Poetry, music, art, uh, architecture, literature, science, creativity, winning the Nobel Prize, all that, you know, is kind of motivated. But Jeffrey Miller, the evolutionary psychologist, think it's more sexual selection. These are guys trying to impress women. Others have other uh, theories about it, more, more status, social status among the group as a whole or so social status competing against other men. Whatever it is, I think it is a human drive to want um, – attention. I mean, you know, and, and men more than women in terms of those kinds of motives, women have their other, other different kind of motives, but um, yeah, it could be something like that. I mean, a lot, uh, you know, in terms of conspiracy theories and gender, you know, um, mo mostly it's more men that are promoting these kind of conspiracy theories than women. Women tend to be a little more cautious about that, although they have their own different kind of motives of, of kind of social, I don't know, hierarchy and competition and things like that. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling here on that, but uh, it's a, one of those factors that, that, that comes up. Yeah, this is, uh, I don't think I saw anything about this, but uh, what, what are the sex differences in, uh, in conspiracy uh, belief? Or are, More, there, are there differences in belief or just expression? Can we tell? Expre expression of the kind of conspiracy theory 
that people are interested in. And here, like race is another more prominent one, even, I think, where, say, African-Americans are more inclined to think they're not more suspicious or paranoid across the board, but they're more likely to believe conspiracy theories about the government planting crack cocaine in inner cities or inventing AIDS to decimate black populations or because of the Tuskegee experiment and other things that are not good uh, that, you know, lead them to be today more vaccine hesitant than whites are, for example. But white Americans are more likely to think that the government is conspiring to take away their guns uh, or to cancel the Second Amendment or build FEMA camps or gun owners and things like that. Um, and, you know, political uh, orientation directs you to different kinds of conspiracy theories, but not more or less conspiracism. So it's not like liberals right. are more conspiratorial minded than, than conservatives or vice versa. But, you know, it depends on the particular conspiracy theory. So birtherism was embraced more by conservatives. 9-11 truther is more by liberals. And, you know, across the board, JFK was, uh, you know, more more of uh, liberals thinking that uh, was true than conservatives, although it's so widespread that that cuts across most of those political borders. Right. And I think you you had a point in the book where uh, where conspiracy belief uh, increased uh, against whoever was in power. Right. Yes. Um, right. Conspiracy yeah. theories are for losers, as political scientists say. <laughs> the losing party thinks the other party cheated. And, and and Democrats do that too, just as much as Republicans. It's just the difference uh, is only recently where the you know Trump was he, he promoted a conspiracy theory even after he won the rigged election one in twenty sixteen. Right, right. That, that was particularly. You know, it's like, dude, you won. You can drop the conspiracy. This is how it works. Here, here's the theory. You didn't read the theory, right? But of course, he was motivated by his ego and his narcissism to have the, a bigger. Um, general population vote than Hillary, even though, you know, she got 6 million more votes or whatever it was, 3 million, whatever it was he wanted. No, it was 6 million. Yeah. And he wanted uh, those also <laughs> anyway. So we'll see what happens in 2024. It's looking more and more like he may not be the uh, candidate that, that the Republicans put up. So that, that would oh, be a huge so? relief. You think it's not going to be Trump? I think, well, we'll see what happens next week, I guess, if he announces his candidacy and then we'll see how DeSantis you know, DeSantis is kind of the golden boy for the GOP at the moment, but I think it's still too far out. I don't really know. I mean, because I, I suspect because my, next week Mike Pence's uh, memoir comes out on Tuesday. Uh, uh, what it was it? Uh, something about God in the title. So help me God is the title. I suspect he'll announce his candidacy and then probably Cruz and maybe Marco Rubio again. Probably not Jeb Bush, but there'll they'll, they'll be others, DeSantis perhaps. And so we'll see if Trump can get away with his um, name calling level of of, uh, of political orientation there. He's already calling Ron DeSantis to sanctimonious. Ron to sanctimonious. Uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, I'm not sure that's going to fly again. It worked that first time. I'm not sure it's going to work this time, uh, but yeah, we'll see. It doesn't seem like a very good nickname. Like this, No, this it's kind of like, yeah, what does that mean, sanctimonious? Yeah. I mean, that, you know, low energy Jeb, you know, everybody got that. You know, Lion Ted and Little little Marco, you know, those are insults that the average person could get. But, you know, sanct the sanctimonious, what is sanctimonious? What is he, what's he talking about? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, although I, I think Trump just just based on just based on loyalty and id i think i think he has the primary i think he's gonna he, he's gonna be a thorn in the side of the republican party for uh for as long as he wants to be basically uh 
I yeah, I hope not. I mean, I'm I'm not a conservative, but I do want a kind of just to the right of center, solid, steady, no craziness uh, Republican Party to counter the far left craziness. Right. That's the whole point yeah, even of politics. Just to split power, right. Like you, you look at the current. Right. The, the Democrats might not even lose the House. I think the, the odds are still that the Republicans take it. But, you know, it should have never been this close. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's, you know, just in terms of how things normally work, most politics happens between the two 40-yard lines, to use a football metaphor. And, um, you know, if it's between the two 20-yard lines, then then crazy things are going to happen on either side. We don't want that. We want stability. You know, nothing too, too, too much. <laughs> right. So, well, you know, Trump's also is a, is a kind of new kind of conspiracism where most conspiracy theories I've dealt with, conspiracy theorists, uh, have arguments you know like the flat earthers mm, they have a yes, whole series yes. of arguments you know the, the holocaust deniers what they have arguments and that you have to gauge with to debunk them but trump you know he's the the arguments without the theory without the theory conspiracy without the theory you know that people are saying that's his that's right. his evidence what people right. oh, a lot of people <laughs> can you name any of them nah lots of lot everybody knows or or just one word rigged Right. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, you just re, you just repeat it, right? You just you just keep the same thing. You don't you don't like usually. Uh, I think, yeah, I, I've made the same observation, especially with conspiracy theorists who I know who I know in person. Which which I think there is a kind of bias. There there is a pretty significant bias for to to be the kind of you know, um, uh, quote unquote sophisticated type, right? The, the type mm-hmm. of conspiracy theorist who is like. Who, who knows a lot of things, who genuinely knows a lot of things. Uh, and I think they, they happen to be people who really like constructing uh, very, very long-winded arguments uh, and bringing in hundreds, thousands of data points. Uh, Trump, yeah, this is, this is more interesting, I think, where his kind of, you know, a certain run, right, uh, kind of uh, conspiracism is, is quite different. Yep, for sure. The new conspiracy. Do you have any? Do you have any idea why? Uh, so, so Jonathan Rauch came on this podcast, and he, mm. he believes that uh, Trump just discovered basically tactics, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, discovered tactics that just no one has tried before, right? Or, or no one has tried in in, uh, in in many decades, and that these tactics were always going to be successful, and that that with Trump. Uh, and he specifically said it's not a social media thing or it's not just a social media thing, that these tactics were always going to be successful and that uh, they, they just used to be stigmatized enough and no one was doing them. And I'm kind of I'm kind of skeptical of that. But do you think that that holds any water, that there are some tactics that Trump just discovered that could have always been used? Interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard Jonathan say that. I loved his book, um, The Constitution of Knowledge. It's really an important book. Um I don't know. I think Trump's tactics, you know, this is probably going to be overdetermined and overanalyzed in years to come. But, you know, just by temperament and personality, uh, he's very entertaining. He is funny. He's good on television. He's good on stage. I mean, he's just preternaturally energetic, particularly for a man his age. I mean, he could give a speech, you know, for three hours. He could just go on and on. His ego is so huge. He loves it. He just eats it up. You know, just like a rocker on stage, just feeding off the energy of the crowd. I think he's one of the best we've had. I mean, people talk about Reagan. I think Trump is even more engaging as a speaker than Reagan was. Um, so there, there has to be something about that and then tapping into, 
you know, the kind of disgruntled middle class or working class white uh, Appalachian type Midwestern people that didn't recover from the 08, 09 meltdown recession and all that stuff. Their, you know, their stock portfolios didn't bounce back like they did on Wall Street. You know, so <laughs> I, th- I think he, you know, he tapped in, in, into a lot of that. Plus, you know, kind of inherent some of it, racism and xenophobia about foreigners that was kind of always there. Uh, there's a new book coming out next spring about the Birchers, the John Birch Society, and that, you know, there's some some of Trump and the kind of Bircher, America first, you know, white Christian, that kind of Christian nationalism we're seeing rising now. I think there's some element of that that he's tapped into, even though Trump is anything but a traditional Christian, for gosh sakes. Uh, but, you know, it's like, uh, but he has enough of, of uh, you know, language that appeals to them. Plus, it's very tribal. Again, we, you know, we have a duopoly. Yeah, we have a duopoly for various reasons and, and we're probably never going to have six parties, legitimate parties like they do in European countries, like in Germany um, for various reasons having to do with uh, gerrymandering and money and whatnot. We ended up with this duopoly. So uh, I know a lot of conservatives who can't stand Trump, but they, you know, it's like, but that's our team. I got to vote my team and destroy yes, it. Doesn't, many such doesn't, cases. Really, doesn't matter who it is. I got to vote the GOP or also I just won't vote at all, but I'm never, ever, ever going to vote democratic. And, you know, and there's a lot of people like that and they don't really have a choice. Whereas if you had six candidates and no one's going to get more than 15% of the vote or whatever, then, then you can vote your, your conscious and your principles. Yeah. This does seem to be, I think in our, in our current, uh, maybe maybe the, the best way to get to this point is, is through a story. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, yeah, I'll just I'll just keep the name uh, secret for now. Although he does do some politics stuff, uh, a friend of mine who does do some politics and uh, writing on related topics uh, was was discussing like the advantages and disadvantages of is, of neuroticism. Right, that we mm. kind of think of people, we kind of think of people in politics as like neurotic and more neurotic. And if you just isolate to the set of people who are already in politics, then someone who is less neurotic might be uh, might be uh, better at their job in terms of you know analyzing policy, making uh, making messages, right, campaigning, uh, and, and many other important tasks in politics and government. Uh, but that the trade-off isn't actually that, right? That's not where the tipping point is. The tipping point is actually between someone who is just not in politics at all, and who just doesn't care, right? And someone who is who is involved in politics, and their neuroticism uh, drives people towards actually being involved, actually caring, actually taking action, right? So, so in the same way, this kind of uh, paranoia, I think, uh, I, I think that actually motivates a many candidates not just on the not just on the right either you can see certainly many people uh on various various parts of the left being maybe not paranoid but certainly uh much more negative than the average person i think you know believing that there's going to be a uh, much greater risk of collapse much greater um negative uh negative um consequences to the election right that that there's just a lot more impact in the elections i think that most people overrate the impact of elections right that Mm. you have all of these basically um 
at least I would say, I, I would call them overreactions. I'm, I'm not sure if you would call them overreactions, but that actually does lead to people taking more action where on, on issues that may, may still matter and that may still be worth doing, right? So, so we once again encounter this thing where like this kind of uh, paranoid mindset that might be related or that I think you showed in the book is related to, uh, is related to conspiracy theories is um, that it is kind of advantageous for a political movement or a political party overall. Um, yeah, well, again, political orientation doesn't predict overall conspiracism. The left and the right are equally conspiratorial in that sense. You know, for everyone, right, you want to talk about the left. Between, is there a difference between um, kind of uh, party activists or hardcore either left and right and people who basically don't care? Right. Or actually, this, this mm. might be an easier way to measure this. Is there a difference between voting and non-voting populations in terms of conspiracy, conspiracy theory belief? Oh, interesting. I don't know. I don't know if anybody's done that study. Um, okay. Yeah, let's. We can put that out on Twitter. See if any, or I could query some <laughs> of my friends. Do you believe in a conspiracy theory? Did yeah. you vote? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you vote? Right. I mean, that would be <laughs> another interesting study. What you're proposing here is just some good future research. I guess, um, again, I, I would say, you know, for every example you give that, you know, the left thinks uh, climate change is going to bring out the end of the world, you know, if we don't do something by 2050 or whatever. Yeah, there's a, there is a lot of that kind of doomsday, but there's just as much of that on the right, too. You know, yeah, that, for sure, for sure. That, you know, the libtards are trying to destroy America, you know, Bernie and the AOC and so on. They want to turn America into a communist state and, you know, not, not, that's just not true. <laughs> and, you know, it's just it's just as grandiose on the other side as a conspiracy theory. It's just not true. Yes. Yeah, so something that also has been increasingly uh, worrying to me, Richard Hanania points us out, is that there is an increasing focus on personalities. Right. That, that there's an increasing focus. And, and he thinks that there's more of this on the right. Uh, I think some of his examples of the most of the biggest headlines on the right versus the left uh, mm. are a good example of, for example, focusing on Fauci, right? It can't just be, it's not the entire bureaucracy. It's I specifically see. this I one see. Uh, Right, and, right. Yeah, the kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if there's more of a focus on Biden versus focusing on Trump. That seems that seems roughly equal, or if anything, more of a focus on Trump as like a, as the man, as the person, right? Um, but that does seem, in my limited experience, that does seem like a pretty significant shift from say like obama and uh mitt romney not to say that there wasn't any focus on the character of both of them right or on their specific personalities and stuff like that but there does seem to be an increase maybe i don't know you know how would you measure that uh i mean politics at the top is always very personality driven i mean teddy roosevelt was you know a bigger than life personality and that got played up for his candidacy and part of his success you know uh, if you go all the way back to anybody theodore roosevelt back to jefferson and these you know founding fathers a lot of them were kind of bigger than life personalities and geniuses brilliant and so on and kennedy was very very smart very charming good looking you know, I mean, people that listen to the Kennedy-Nixon debate thought Nixon won. People that watch the Kennedy-Nixon debate thought Kennedy won because he was so <laughs> much 
better looking and taller and on and on. Why would that make a difference? It does make a difference. Right. And, you know, so I think those factors have always, always been at play. I'm not sure. I think part, part, part of it is uh, the fact that everything happens so rapidly online with the internet is, is not created new conspiracy theories, not worse. Now there's always been conspiracy theories, but they penetrate so rapidly and deeply into culture, you know, overnight, uh, you know, like Alex Jones famously with the Sandy Hook thing, within a, within an hour he's on the air talking about this has the fingerprints of the CIA all over it as a false flag operation. You know, just, and right. you know and within how did you figure that out in an hour. Right? Yeah, so, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, so he's just bullshitting, so but, sure. but, yeah. but but people are you know th- this this penetrated into culture. Sandy Hook is a false flag operation. You know, within hours. Whereas before, like I talk about this in the book, you know, the JFK conspiracy theorists, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, you know, they were meeting in these small hotel conference rooms, a few dozen people. They got their mimeograph newsletter, self-published books, you know, kind of trying to make homemade movies, but failed. You know, there's just nothing like today where you can have a slick looking web page. You can reach millions of people in, in one shot. And you get social media to fuel it. And if it goes viral, you know, you're at the top of the game within days, whereas it used to take years and decades to get any traction. Right. Yeah. This also seems like something uh, notable to me that there is that basically hyper connectivity means that your conspiracy theories are much more correlated than they would be in the past. Right. So if you believed like crazy things about your own village, right, you could have, let's say this is like 1800s, right? Every village or city um, believes kind of crazy things. Maybe there's some relationship to uh, people who, you know, you can send mail to, who you can maybe uh, uh, walk or take a carriage to the next to the mm. next town. But, you know, they would all believe different conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so there, there's not that same kind of um, competition. There's not that same kind of organization that's built, uh, you're not going to get, you know, if everyone in different towns believes in different conspiracy theories, you're not going to get, get thousands of them to come together on, uh, on, uh, the Capitol, for example. Right. So, so that there, there used to be this kind of, um, d- just like natural variants that made it so that these things were much less threatening than now. Yeah. Although see, uh, like if you study the witch crazes, that spread through Europe, they did spread from town to town through word of mouth, not not as rapidly, obviously, as electronic communications can, but they spread within days and weeks and months. Uh, I mean, the witch crazes you yeah. know, would play would play out For fairly sure. quickly, and, and in a way, a, a witch uh, a witch craze is a kind of fueled is fueled by a kind of conspiracy theory of you know de- women cavorting with demons in the middle of the night secretly. We don't know what's going on. And, you know, it's what, what are the results of this? Oh, it's, you know, the plague or it's so-and-so's cow died or, or, you know, we're having a bad crop year or there was this horrible storm and, you know, so on. Anything that happened that was bad needed an explanation. And the explanation was witches, you know, I call that the witch theory of causality. Now we don't, have that anymore because we have meteorology and we have epidemiology and the germ theory of disease and you know we know why bad things happen but they didn't and uh, but even today so conspiracy theories are particularly popular when, when we don't have an explanation so you know when SARS-CoV-2 comes online in uh, December 2019 and then starts to spread in January February March 2020 throughout the United States um, it, there was so much uncertainty nobody knew 
what was going to happen. You know, how deadly is this thing going to be? I don't know. No one knew. You know, is it going to be like the flu, which in which case, you know, carry on business as usual. But what if it's like HIV? You know, and I like to remind people HIV was 100 percent fatal you know, until we got the drug cocktail in the nineties, hundred percent right. fatal. I mean, what if it turned out to be like that or Ebola, you know, or like tens of, you know, ten, a billion people, hundreds of millions, a billion people could die. You know, so if you're a politician, you're the head of the CDC, you're Anthony Fauci, and you're standing there before a row of microphones and the media is asking you, uh, you know, what should we do? What do we recommend? What do you recommend? Do we close the schools? Do we mask everybody? What do we do? And, you know, so here you have the signal detection problem. What if you err on the wrong side? You go, oh, no, this, this is probably not going to be a big deal. And it turns out it's like Ebola. <laughs> then, you know, that you those deaths are on your hands. You told us to carry on as usual. Look what happened. Right. So they're they're inclined. They're motivated to err on the other side. Let's right, be overly cautious. Symmetric. Yeah. Just in case. Yeah, that's right. And so I try to be sympathetic. Um, if, I, if it was me standing there in front of a bank of microphones, what would I say? You know, if I was the mayor, if I was the governor, if I was the president, um, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I, I can't say I'd say, oh, let's just carry on as usual. Now we know, you know, it wasn't that deadly and there was a cost to shutting down schools. For example, that report that just came out that American school children are two years behind now, math and reading and so on. It's like, OK, maybe that wasn't such a good idea, but we didn't know at the time. I think the, the area that's most interesting to me with a lot of these uh, conspiracy theories is uh, related to the pandemic and related to, uh, you mentioned earlier, the quote unquote deep state, right? Is that a lot of the time these conspiracy theories uh, are are in a kind of very blurry area, right? You mentioned COINTELPRO, you mentioned MKULTRA, right? It's possible that some some small percentage of them are true and that you might want to, you might want to curtail them. Uh, you might want to curtail the portion that are true, but also there are just a bunch of them that are just, you know, completely false, right? So how does this interact with the kind of, uh, how does this interact with the kind of incentives of those organizations? Well, um, I guess if you're tasked with spying on foreign countries, well, I should just say gathering intelligence on foreign countries and operatives in your own country that could be terrorists, for example, you know, this is the CIA's job and the FBI is supposed to be you know, domestic and CIA is supposed to be international. Um, you know, you can see how they could slide into justifying warrantless wiretaps as an example uh, which did happen, we know from WikiLeaks, that not only during the Bush administration, when the Homeland Security Agency was formed, is this massive surveillance organization, and that it continued during Obama. And, you know, there's something weird that happens when you get into power. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I, you know, I always uh, very much respected and admired President Obama, a smart guy. You know, apparently he was going to be transparent, you know, Mr. Transparent. Boy, when I get in there, I'm going to, you know, show, uh, you know, like Elon with the algorithms. I'm going to expose what Twitter has been up to. Okay, let's see it. <laughs> and then Obama gets in there and it's like, okay, he's not going to close Gitmo. He's not going to pull the troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan. In fact, he's going to have a surge. And, uh, okay, what happens when they get in there? And, and I don't know, maybe when you're in government, and you're in that position, everything changes. Maybe they know stuff. Here's what I think. I think there's a lot of stuff, the deep state, if you want to use that term, 
uh, is real and that they know stuff that we don't know. And maybe they have rationalizations for why they don't want to tell us what's really going on. But, you know, you get president, you, you get elected president. And before you take office on January 20th, they take you in the back room. And they go, OK, here's what's actually going on. We know this happens. If they're all given white papers and go, OK, here's the here's the nuclear here's the nuclear codes and here's where the missiles are located. And here's what the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans are really up to. And like, oh, my God, I had no idea. Right. When I was campaigning, I said, I do. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that. <laughs> they all say they're going to do stuff that they can't do. And when we tell them what's actually going on. Oh, OK. You know, and, and so they start struggle for their four or eight years to do whatever they can do. And they can, can only do so much. And uh, so this is probably why even Obama, you know, Mr. Transparency, we're not going to do what the Bush administration was doing. Time for a change. Well, he didn't change that much in that regard. I mean, of course, politics as usual. He and, you know, did, did the usual Democrat thing. Just like Trump, most of what Trump did before he lost his mind over the uh, 2020 election uh, was pretty standard, pretty normal Republican stuff. You know, we're going to lower taxes. You know, we're going to deregulate business. You know, we're going to tighten up the borders. We're gonna quit spending money on all these foreign, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's Republican, normal Republican. That's his day job. That's literally what they're supposed to do. That's why they were elected. <laughs> so you can't really blame Trump for any of that. If it would have been, uh, again, Jeb Bush or, or or Ted Cruz, they would have done all the same thing. You know, I'm going to appoint uh, 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 Supreme Court justices that are going to get us the, the, the laws we want. Yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> Everybody, Democrats do the same thing in the other direction. Right. So whatever the deep state is, I think most of the time it operates the way we think it does. But I do think there are things that go on that we just don't know for good. Maybe sometimes it's for good reason, for national security reasons, to protect our foreign assets, agents that we have in, in, in foreign countries that are spying for us and whatever. I'm sure there's a lot of that that goes on. If that's the deep state, I'd say it's real. Um, you know, then, but the problem is then you take it and run with it and you end up with these, you know, grand conspiracy theories that, you know, probably go too far. Right. What's interesting is that, uh, I come at this from perspective. Um, I'm not sure if you've listened to the podcast for the people in the audience who've listened to the podcast. I think the one that came out right before this is going to be the one with, uh, Richard Bruns, where we discuss the FDA Right. I'm, I'm very, something that I care very much about is just reforming the incentives. We talked about the incentives earlier a little bit, the incentives of some of these bureaucracies, these permanent bureaucracies. And if you kind of, you kind of think about it for a few seconds, uh, permanent bureaucracy, which is this thing that libertarians have been talking about for many, uh, many decades now is kind of synonymous with the deep state. Uh, it's just, of course, the, the kind of emotional and, you know, uh, uh, implications or like the even like the social sense of what people really mean when they're using the terms right are very different but in terms of just like an observable thing right there are there are certainly bureaucrats who uh, who at the very least outlast many presidents and who have legal restrictions that make them much more difficult to be fired right this is this is well known this mm-hmm. is like there are specific mm-hmm. US laws that describe this process uh, it's completely open and transparent right and uh, to me at least, Right. Uh, I have made the case that it is actually very important to address the role and the incentives and what powers uh, these uh, federal bureaucracies actually have. But the, the, what's very funny is that libertarians have tried many decades to, to do this now, right, with mixed success. I remember Richard Hanania had an article about uh, Reagan's attempts 
to change the civil rights bureaucracy uh, with with mixed results as well. Uh, and so to me, right, there just hasn't been very much of the fervor or the political will that's necessary to do this. And then along comes the, this group of conservatives who seem to be actually somewhat serious about it, right? There, it, it was the Trump wing that put forward the Schedule F uh, idea that that put forward this reclassification. It wasn't like it wasn't like the Libertarians. It wasn't Jeb Bush. It wasn't Rand Paul, right? Mm. It wasn't those kinds of people who who put put forward a policy that might actually have uh, basically positive externalities, right? Even if they want to do it for even if they want to do it for the wrong reasons. So that's kind of why I think this this topic of of like the deep state. Uh, I do agree that people who say the deep state kind of. Uh, or at, at the very least are intellectually sloppy, make a bunch of claims that I think they should be, uh, that they are at least way too confident on, right? And that are probably uh, very unlikely. But at the same time, are willing to, are, are willing to put basically like the, the political will and the, and the energy necessary to actually put some of these, what I see as overall beneficial policies into, into practice. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, you know, again, back to kind of the incentives of what people will do if they're not regulated, if there's no rules or whatever, you know, that kind of anarcho-capitalist libertarian view of just, you know, just let people do their thing as long as they don't harm anybody else um, or, you know, minimize regulations. Well, we know what happens there when, when you don't do it. People will cheat. They will try to gain a slight uh, advantage over somebody else. And anyway, back to my athlete, athlete uh, metaphor a- analog is, you know, athletes will do whatever they can to win, even if they don't want to cheat, uh, if they think the other people are doing it. Just to take doping as in cycling, yeah, but for sure. sports in general, you know, even if most of the athletes don't want to dope, but if they think somebody else is doping and that makes a 1% advantage difference or 5%, 10% at most, that that's huge at that level, at the highest end, you know, 1% is a gigantic advantage that you could get. And everybody has to do it uh, just even if they don't want to. And, um, and so you have to have all those, uh, rules and regulations fairly enforced. And I think that applies to government as well. Um, you know, we know from the financial meltdown in 08, why that happened. And, you know, because all these banks and so on were incentivized to sell these, um, packaged mortgages in which people who really were not qualified were able to get, uh, mortgages. And then they all went bust at the same time, roughly. And the whole thing, but it's not any one person's fault. It wasn't like, like the, the Volkswagen cheating the emission standards example. It's, it's not like one person, you know, was, was cheating, conspiring to do something. It's like the entire system was corrupt because, you know, of just that deregulating the banking industry and letting them um, promote these high risk investment tools that people were obviously incentivized to take advantage of. And, uh, you know, people are, we know from studies that people are very short term in their thinking. They discount the future uh, very radically and they don't think about, you know, well, when that adjustable rate mortgage comes due in five years, you know, what's it going to look like if the interest rate is double? I don't know. I'm not going to worry about that. I can qualify for a house now and I get to live in it for a couple of years at the super low uh, monthly mortgage. And that's right. just pretty normal. And the, of course, the banks were incentivized to take advantage of that it, all the way down to the individual 
reps, you know, just on the phone and their bosses, like how many did, deals did you close today? Cause you got to close 10 a day. That's our average. So this guy's on the phone, just cranking them out. And, uh, you know, I forget what the term was, but it was like, no, no income, no, uh, credit. I forget what the term is, but you know, people that were getting loans that should never have gotten a, a loan. And, uh, you know, it's not any one person you can, you can really hardly blame the guy on the phone or his boss. Cause his boss has a boss who's got a boss all the way up to the CEO. And, uh, yeah, so I, you know, call that what you will. I don't know if it's a conspiracy so much as just a wrongly designed and poorly incentivized system. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, the maximalist cases are, the, the maximalist cases are quite, are quite extreme. I agree. Uh, it, it, with the financial regulation stuff, I think I, I'm one of the people who are very pro, uh, uh, very pro uh, reserve limits, uh, and th- there's a quite a few. There's quite a few uh, economists who are on this camp as well. I'm not. I'm not like as confident as many of them who have researched this more. But I think the the, the case for like reserve limits and less sort of uh, human oversight is uh, is pretty strong. But on the kind of broader on the kind of broader scale, I'm not sure because this is this is also the topic of the previous podcast. We get into all the nuances, uh, but to me, there is there is this like superset of things, or sorry, yeah, there's a superset of things that are uh, not regulated in the current system that are also not regulated by that that we are that are also very unlikely to be regulated in the future that is like the most things that people will complain the most about. And then there is the active, there is the active overregulation of things that you actually can do something about. And just taking the, taking the difference between the two, right. Is the most important thing when you're thinking about practical policy. So yeah, a very, so, very good right. example of this is uh, the CDC banning COVID tests. Mm. Uh, this is, this is, uh, I mean, I've been trying to popularize it a lot. Uh, I've seen more people try to popularize it recently. Uh, this is just well known, uh, reported by I think first reported by Science Magazine uh, that uh, the 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 uh, CDC banned all functioning COVID tests for the first four months of the pandemic. Mm. So there was one COVID test that they uh, basically granted a government monopoly for, and that COVID test uh, did not work. And, and so the U.S. wasn't able to employ some of the same strategies that, say, uh, South Korea did or that Taiwan did with a functioning COVID test. And, you know, not everything is monocausal, right? Many, many factors led into the U.S.'s early pandemic response. But I think this was certainly, this is certainly an impactful one. And you should, not, you should not be banning COVID tests right at the beginning of, mm. uh, at the beginning of, a, of a pandemic. Uh, and so you have this, and they've repeated this pattern with, I think wastewater testing in polio, that was something that Shvi Moshewitz uh, alerted me to. Uh, they've had this problem uh, fairly frequently at this point, right? Uh, with some regional pandemics as well, H1N1, right? So you have the situation where uh, where there's been a tried and true record of basically failing at the same thing over and over again, even though we have the saying, right, if you if you do the same thing, expecting something different to happen. That's the definition of <laughs> right. Insanity, right? right. So, so, so there are many aspects of the CDC that are insane in this aspect, but is definitely based on the kind of structural incentives that we talked about earlier. Now, that, that was still pretty long-winded, but I think is the kind of uh, short case that I would make for at least um, 
uh, let's say like reforms to the, the powers that these organizations are given, at least uh, in some aspects. I, I do agree on the financial point, though. That's that's one of the strongest uh, areas, I think, where um, where there has to be there, there has to be guardrails or else, you know, the incentives mm-hmm. are, just completely, uh, are just completely shifted in the other direction. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Well, so speaking of that, since um, there's two hypotheses about the origins of SARS-CoV-2 entering human populations, zoonomic, essentially an accident coming from bats and pangolins into the wet markets and entering humans that way, or the lab leak hypothesis. So it's been interesting to watch that being bandied about, the second one. Because uh, it's not really technically a conspiracy theory, because no one's accusing the Chinese of intentionally releasing this as a bioweapon, you know, on their own people in their own city. What? Uh, but but just a lab leak. We know labs leak. We know this happens. It's happened over decades, many times. Uh, just human error, chance, accidents, and so on. So it could be that. But that it's treated as a crazy conspiracy theory is weird to me from somebody who studies conspiracy theories because it was never that. Uh, I mean, right. unless you want to say, well, the Chinese government is less than forthcoming. Maybe they lie. Maybe they cover stuff up. If that's your conspiracy theory, then that that could be because we know they're not very transparent. We don't. Right. I wouldn't I, trust either way, them. we know that, you know, they've not made documents available at the very least. Right. Right. Either either regard with regards to a lab origin or a pandemic or a, or a natural origin. Right. They haven't made any of the or they've made very little of the early documentation available to the public at all. So so if there's some kind of uh, if we're talking about covering things up, right, like they could be covering up uh, natural origin, they could be covering a, a lab origin, but either way, they're not very forthcoming at all. <laughs> right. So that fuels conspiracism, of course. <clears throat> and uh, but but it bothers me that it, it's always been treated as a crazy conspiracy theory. And, you know, for, for the first, first few months, it was discussed and then it got uh, shut down basically as you're a crazy conspiracy theorist if you promote this lab leak hypothesis. And then all of a sudden it became okay to talk about it again last, uh, well, well, when was this in maybe March or April when, um, when yeah. John, um, the comedian, oh, gosh, um, John Stewart. Yeah. John, John Stewart went on one of those tonight shows and, 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 you know, basically made fun of the opposite that, you know, how can it not be part of the lab? It's, it's right there in the name, Vera, the, you know, the virology lab is right there anyway. And then, it, then all of a sudden it became okay. And then Matt Ridley's book came out a uh, viral in which he, yeah, that was a good he, book. yeah, he didn't promote the lab leak hypothesis so much as just say it has, equal Bayesian probability as the zoonomic one. It could go either way. And I thought that's pretty reasonable. That's not a crazy conspiracy theory at all, but still it has a little bit of a taint to it even now. And I don't think that's that it should. Yeah. Something that, that I think is pretty worrisome about the term conspiracy theory as it's used in practice now is that there's a sort of contagion effect that happens, right? Uh, no pun intended where (laughs) someone like Alex Jones discusses a lab leak or someone who believes in various other conspiracy theories discusses something, then uh, even if that thing has, like you said, like pretty solid uh, priors in terms of at least investigating about it and at least thinking about it. And I say this as someone who is actually much more pro-natural origin than I think a lot of people in uh, my kind of uh, immediate media circle, right? Uh, the, the types of people who I speak with, uh, I think that I, I think that there is this there is this um, 
almost uh, there, there's just jumping the gun that happens with declaring things a conspiracy theory, right? And so something like Lab Leak is probably the best example of this, where it's like, okay, yeah, this is just a, a possible, this is a possible event. Uh, it's not even necessarily technically a conspiracy uh, at all, right? It's just you know a possibility, and you, it should be investigated. But if there's, you know, if, if there's the kind of uh, wrong people who who are promoting it. Right there, there's this, almost this kind of uh, tribal effect, like we were talking about earlier. I remember uh, I talked about this at length with Richard Hanania of like uh, of Republicans really reacting, kind of uh, uh, as as a as an instinctive reaction, as an instinctive kind of contrarianism, where if the left supports vaccines, they're going to oppose vaccines. Right, mm. same thing. Right, they they think like, oh, if Alex Jones supports lab leak, then we're going to instinctively support. We're going to uh, instinctively oppose lab leak. It, it's it's uh, yeah. I, I do think there's a social effect where it's much more people are much more eager to apply conspiracy, the label of conspiracy theory, when it doesn't actually uh, when it doesn't actually fit. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pejorative label to shut people down and stop the conversation, which is not good. Right, and I think where the lines are probably the blurriest. I do want to talk about this uh, before we end. Is uh, is the, these various analysis of uh, social social phenomenon, right? If you just look at uh, social justice, quote unquote wokeness, right? The way that they coordinate, the way that there is kind of social media mobs. Uh, we talked about earlier how there are also kind of explicit uh, advertiser campaigns, that kind of thing, right? Explicit pressure that's organized out in the public as well. Uh, I think there's been a lot of attempts to analyze these things as sort of mass phenomenon where the payoff is also obviously there, right? It's obviously, I think, correlated in some way, right? Uh, these kind of actions, these beliefs are correlated in some way, possibly from organizing in the public, po- possibly due to uh, various kind of psychological factors, right? But at the same time, that can easily go too far and people take that into a kind of conspiracy uh, level where um, where I think there's just not the evidence to prove it in a kind of, uh, in a kind of Bayesian sense, right? So, mm-hmm. so what do you think about those kind of attempts, right? Those kind of attempts with the, with the Game B people, with a lot of the people who are the quote unquote intellectual dark web, right? A lot of the people who are thinking about, uh, thinking about why, uh, or how. Right, yeah. The intellectual dark web, such as it is. <laughs> it was part of that. I don't even really know what it is. Uh, you know, just people that are talking about interesting ideas, I guess it's fine. I'm a big free speech guy. Just let people have their voice. I like the, that people like Joe Rogan will talk to anybody. I think that's fine. You know, it's just, just know what you're getting. You know, you listen to Joe Rogan, it's not 60 minutes where they have a team of researchers and background and he's going to interview three different people at the same time that have different perspectives. You know, that's just not what he does. So when he talks to Brett Weinstein about these things, ivermectin or Robert Malone about um, myocarditis and vaccines or whatever, you know, I think they're probably wrong about those things and, you know, probably kind of out there a bit on the fringe, but you know, what do I know? Maybe they're right. And so let's hear somebody else on another show talk about it and give us the, you know, the end. You can look up Robert Malone and myocarditis. 
within 30 seconds, you've got the explanation for it. Um, so there's, I don't see anything wrong with that. I've, uh, you know, the, uh, Brett Weinstein's, what is it? Plant? No, plan B. Game part, B. No, what is it? Game B. Game B. Yeah. Game B. Yeah. 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 I've, I've heard him talk about this a bit. Uh, I'm not sure he's worked it out enough in detail. So therefore he doesn't share too much, or maybe he's got more there. Um, I'm not sure there's there, there <laughs> to replace the system we have. I'm always leery uh, about, um, making too many dramatic changes. Cause you know, I've written, I wrote, wrote a whole book about moral progress. Mostly it happens slowly, gradually, peacefully, legally. That's the best way for it to happen. You know, we would like it to happen faster maybe, but you know, just if you track the civil rights movements, you know, just changing the laws, it takes time. And you know, this gets back to the original conservatism and Berkey and conservatism, Edmund Burke writing about the American Revolution versus the French Revolution. The American Revolution was done, you know, legally, slowly, um, clearly, transparently. These are the things we like about the old system. These are the things we don't like. This is what we're going to change. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. It's going to be done legally. People are going to vote. We're going to have these meetings and it's going to take years to put it all together. We get this constitution, you know, 1776, uh, 1787. By the time we have a constitution, you're talking, you know, 11 years to work out the details and so on and so on. And, you know, that's how it should be done as opposed to the French revolution, where we're going to tear the whole thing down and start over tomorrow, including a new calendar, new days of the week, everything, everything (laughs) is going to be different. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Literally. And, and then, you know, within years you get, you know, a bloodbath, of just utter destruction by tearing everything down. And then you end up with Napoleon, a dictator to, to, to take, take the place of the mess, clean up the mess. You know, that's not good. So conservatives have a perspective that's worth listening to, you know, don't tear the whole thing down. Certain institutions that have been around for centuries are there for a reason. They work pretty well, not great, not perfect, but they work pretty well and maybe better than other systems. So before we have game B, let's see if we can tweak game A whatever it is that he calls what we're doing now. Um, yeah, and see if game we can a. <laughs> game a, yeah. Just see if we can tweak game a a little bit, make it a little bit better tomorrow than it is today. And the next day, make it slightly better. Still. I call that protopia. I don't call it. Pro- Kevin Kelly calls that protopia. I call it protopian politics, you know, just, just gradually peacefully. But, you know, as I like to say, it does, it doesn't make for a great campaign slogan or a marching slogan. You know, what do we want? Slow, peaceful, gradual change. When do we want it? Eventually, <laughs> you know, people aren't going to get out of their chairs and march down town to city hall carrying placards for something like that. Yeah. I mean, in terms of in terms of practical politics, though, that is that is what we get. It's either marginal, yeah. There, there's very little. There's very little marginal. Uh, uh, there, there's very little uh, extreme extreme improvement in government, right? There's there's very little extreme change aside from say like pandemic measures in general. That it's mostly it's mostly uh, gradual gradual change in practice. So if, if you're going to have a, a cogent political strategy, right? What what am I actually going to do when I get into office, right? That's always going to be the approach, I think, right? And if, if that's not the approach, then you might get something like Trump, where they are uh, they're just not they're just not accomplishing not accomplishing the end goal. Uh, I, I do think that kind of perspective that that is, or I should probably put it this way. This is maybe a uh, a way that's fairer to people who might disagree is that that is also my di- disposition that's which i think maybe is something that doesn't come across as well i'm just kind of thinking across uh the past episodes maybe it's just something that doesn't contrast very well with the guests that i have on 
but who are very much of the same type, who are very much uh, kind of classical conservatives, and I try to push them a little bit, uh, is that there is this kind of um, there is this kind of humility that you have to have, I think, when you're when you're looking at it's kind of like the inverse of the conspiracy theory thing, right? Where you where you determine if things are true by taking the probabilities of all of them, all all, all of the component parts succeeding. Uh, if you make if you make changes, you should determine the probability that they'll succeed by all by determining whether the component parts will uh, individually succeed, and then and then trying to find the find the uh, combined probabilities there. Uh, I do think mm. yeah, I do think that a lot of the time uh, people are there's this common phrase right? People overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can mm. do in ten. Right. I think that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I think that's right. <laughs> Whose observation was that? I like that. I don't, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's definitely not mine. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Right. I, I just, I bring up the game B point, not as a kind of utopian project though, but as, as they're kind of, understanding of understanding of social media and understanding of how uh political coalitions form is a kind of i mean uh brett weinstein has this metaphor of uh evolutionary organism right that all these ideologies are kind of evolutionary organisms or this might be a kind of derivative from richard dawkins and uh and the idea of the meme right uh and basically looking at these ideologies looking at these political parties as basically kind of uh somewhat loosely loosely correlated organisms i i think on one hand on on one hand right you you can't it's just too too difficult to say like create a create a map of every single possible individual every single player in a in a widespread political system that's what thousands of people at least right Mm. and and that's just too difficult for anyone to individually analyze but at the same time right this kind of this kind of clustery thinking right this kind of thinking that lumps a lot of things together it's it's pretty susceptible to uh to conspiracies that aren't true or it's pretty susceptible to just misguided thinking in general and uh thinking about the trade-offs there thinking about how to actually approach this in a in a stable in a stable way uh that to me seems like a very important open problem of our times. Hmm. Right. But again, uh, what are the specific measures that say game B wants to implement to change the system we currently have? It's like Greta, I see Greta Thunberg has a new book out. <laughs> I haven't read, I haven't seen the book yet, but the reviews basically saying she just wants to tear the whole system down. The whole, you know, capitalism is the problem. Right, we should end capitalism. No more greed, you know, and profit motive and so on. Well, <laughs> that's not going to happen. First of all, that's never going to happen. Second of all, it's, it, you know, that's the system that, that pulled 90% of humanity out of poverty. And, you know, you want to impoverish people. I mean, maybe instead of taking, uh, you know, automobiles away from everybody in the Western world and we all just go horse and buggy or we walk or I don't know what she's proposing. And how about we just get everybody on electric cars in the, on the entire planet. Everyone have internet access. Everyone gets a smartphone and just make everybody wealthier rather than pulling down the top, you know, 1%. You complain about the people at the top, you know, just the levels of inequality are staggering. I mean, they're just amazing what, 
tiny percentage of people. In some cases, you can just name the families that have the most wealth, and they have some you know significant two-digit percentage of the entire wealth of the of the United States. For example, that does that does intuitively feel bad, wrong, somehow misguided, lopsided, and so on. You know, but on the other hand. Uh, instead of worrying about what they're doing, you know, what do I care how much money Elon Musk has? I don't care. Uh, you know, I just, I, I care. I'd rather worry about the people at the bottom. What can we do to get them up? You know, and just taking Musk's money away from him and giving it to the people that, first of all, that's not going to happen. And second of all, it's not enough, right? So what can we do to get those people up uh, to middle-class level, something like that? So I, again, I don't know what Brett's details are about his, uh, game B, but um, how how could you say next election cycle pass some legislation or elect some officials who are going to tweak the capitalist system to be slightly fairer, just like 1% fairer or different or something, you know, that, that seems more practical to me than, than the, some kind of ideological airy fairy, you know, let's just tear the whole thing down and start some new system. Uh, that's just not how it works. Yeah, I think, I mean, you probably know better than me the psychological motivations for focusing on distribution, right? I, I think there, there's been several studies I've, I, I've seen recently. Uh, I was kind of preparing this for an article that I ultimately uh, never finished of, of malicious envy predicting support for redistribution, right? So, so there you probably know better than me though what kind of psychological motivators people have for basically kind of being more focused on tearing things down than building things up i don't know how much i know about that <laughs> uh you know my my focus in the moral arc was more on moral progress uh but you know i i, I follow some of the other trends Pe- people like uh, matt ridley and bjorn lomborg steven pinker you know that write about material progress it seems pretty evident that life is you know, really better than it's ever been for more people and more a larger percentage of, of the population, you know, has cheaper light, better food, safer roads, you know, and so on. Is living twice as long with, you know, potable water and that fan, uh, sanitation systems and so on. I mean, just by almost any measure, we've never uh, lived in such a, a good time, but that's not to say that there aren't, problems. People have a hard time holding two ideas in their head at the same time. Things are, things have never been so good and there are still serious problems left to solve. Those, those can both be true. (laughs) Right. Right. So I've basically, I've basically run out of prep. Is there anything else you want to, you want to discuss in particular? Oh, well, gosh, I've enjoyed this conversation. You're a super interesting guy. Um, There's probably a lot of these things that uh, you know more about than I do on the, some of those topics, but um, I find it interesting to kind of bandy about these different topics at different um, kind of inter- intersection of different subjects and fields that I don't often connect. I think it's one of the the kind of joys of of being living today that there's so much rich interaction of different ideas coming together as more than ever before, because there's so much instant access to knowledge across different disciplines. I mean, the it's kind of cliche interdisciplinary, we should all be interdisciplinary, (laughs) right? And and you're going to break down those balkanized walls between departments on on university campuses. They shouldn't be there because there's so much we can learn from other 
people, which is why I like, you know, reading books in, in, in from different authors in different fields that I don't know much about. And it's just easier to do that now than ever before. And, you know, like, and podcasts are uh, such a great source of content consumption that are free. Uh, you can listen to them anywhere, anytime while you're driving, hiking, cycling, in my case, uh, do find, doing the chores. Wait, do you whatever. find uh, academia to be more balkanized now? No, I find it to be less, but I, I'd like yeah. to see it even less balkanized. Um, I mean, there's always been some kind of interdisciplinary fields, but uh, and and it's getting better. But um, but more more still would be <laughs> even better. I think uh, I, I'm not one of these people that, that that's predicting the doom of brick and mortar universities. I think they will always be around as they have for centuries. Uh, but I think the opportunity for those who are not attending has never been as good. You know, you can be an autodidact for life, just teaching yourself. Um, the, the thing that a college education perhaps provides is some kind of structure for how to do that, how to continue learning the rest of your life. And, you know, that, that has value still, I think. But now you have so many choices uh, online mostly free, mostly instantaneous and just endless supply. I get up every morning and it's like, oh my God, there's like six different podcasts I want to listen to. I have this audio book, I have a teaching company course I want to uh, finish and this, it's just never ends. <laughs> and at some point you just got to go, okay. And most of the people I follow on Twitter post links to articles that I want to read. And if I'm not careful, you know, three hours goes by and I'm still reading articles. I feel like I really need to read. <laughs> so you have to, if anything, we have too much content. Right. And, and I want to kind of get this point on the record. Maybe this is a, a kind of meta contrarian point, right? It's contrarian against the contrarians. Uh, but I, I think that actually, yeah, the, the amount of cross-pollinization in academia has been steadily increasing, maybe not at the formal level, right? Maybe not in like papers and stuff like that, but just the amount of collaboration, the amount of uh, I think a lot of it happens in the startup world, right? People from different areas go and create businesses together, uh, and, and I should be kind of upfront with my biases here. I'm much more, much more connected with uh, the sort of STEM uh, and engineering, uh, the kind of technical schools, MIT, mm -hmm. uh, MIT, Stanford, Waterloo, right? Mm. Maybe this is not the case in humanities. Uh, but to me, there's been, there, there's been kind of more, one example is just all of the biotech, right? A lot of software and biology people uh, coming together who would have otherwise never interacted. Uh, at least from what I'm told, would, would have rarely interacted a decade or two ago. Uh, mm -hmm. So to me, like on the question of cross-pollinization, I'm kind of optimistic on that in academia. In terms of the, the thing that I'm most... Actually, I'm, I'm, the problem is I'm not sure if this is a golden age fallacy or not, right? People imagining the past <laughs> to be better than it was. But mm. I'm told constantly by professors and by people who went to uh, university like 20, 30 years ago, that they had a very open, open discussion environment and that nowadays it's much more, it's much more. Uh, well, yeah, because of cancel culture, cancel yeah. culture is real. It's real, but, um, but we need to put it in perspective. You know, if you watch uh, Fox News and Jesse Waters, Tucker Carlson and so on, and they have these constant clips every week of some crazy, college campus incident, students screaming and yelling, like there was one yesterday, Ann Coulter spoke at her alma mater, Cornell, and, you know, the crazy lunatic 
left students were screaming at her and just, you know, they had to haul them out. The police had to come and haul them out, the security guards, whatever, you know, there's enough of that, that it seems like if you're not in academia, like, Oh, I don't want to go on a college campus. I'm not sending my kid to college, you know, but you know, I, I'm a professor at Chapman university and you know, you never see anything like that. I mean, it's just, just, you know, you have 5,000 universities and colleges, whatever it is. And, you know, it's just that, 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 that was the one this week, you know, so if you just randomly walked on campus, you don't see any of this. There's no protests, you know, students are just holed up in the dorm or they're down at the Starbucks or they're at the gym working out or whatever. And they're, you know, so it, it, it's real, you know, it happens. There's enough incidents of professors that have been chased out of their jobs, lose their tenure, whatever, because of something they said that was uh, it, it, pro- not not properly woke enough or whatever. There's enough of those that it's a concern. And the organization FIRE, I support, you know, Greg Lukianoff's group that keeps track of all this stuff and offers legal protection for professors uh, over free speech issues. That's all real. That's all good. But let's not let's not get out of uh, exaggerate here. It's not like the academy is falling apart, and all of a sudden there's no more free speech. That's just not the case. Or I should say that my critique is actually quite different. I know that that's the main kind of like quote unquote mainstream uh, critique. I do think that the kind of rich academic environment, or the kind of academic environment that you still see in specific in kind of isolated areas, like in uh, in uh, the University of Chicago economics department, right? The, those kind of fierce debates. I mm. think there's been a kind of dispositional change that's that's maybe more threatening, at least from my judgment, of... Um, uh, so uh, I'm not sure... Uh, so there's this term that was brought up in a different podcast these these two terms ortho orthocentric and heterocentric conversations i think that's what they are right where the the former orthocentric conversations are basically people who are trying to be tribal they're they're basically tribal conversations and heterocentric conversations are like uh scientific ones where in the former people are trying to build coalitions they're trying to suck up to each other they're, they're trying to not step on anyone's toes and in, in uh, heterocentric conversations, maybe ones that you would see at like the University of Chicago School of Economics, right? They're mm. basically solely focused on finding the truth, right? So the kind of scientific uh, ideal. And to me, there there is at least much, many fewer, uh, there's a much fewer percentage of the student body that engages in heterocentric conversations who are just mm. completely pursuing the science and not yeah okay i'll I'll grant you that yeah Yeah. a small minority of of cancel culture students could silence other people just by self-censorship i don't i don't even think it's like a cancel culture thing i think it's uh i think it's like a group uh group differences in psychology thing right the the kind of Mm. uh john twenge ijen uh uh, I mm. thesis, right, of students oh, right, being, right. Or, or of kids not even in university yet being raised in overproductive ways, uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's that's one hypothesis. Another is just that this is the this is the natural consequence of expanding university to more people. That actually mm-hmm. a percentage of people th- this would be more of a kind of fixed psychology view, right? The 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 po- distribution of psychological traits and a population is uh, more or less constant that if you just expand it to include uh, more people, uh, or if you make the selection less focused on say uh, 
on say intelligence or on say academics and you introduce all of these other uh other factors that you're including in your uh in your selections or in your admissions processes that you're just going to get a decline in that in that concentration of people with those uh with with the either the will or the ability to have these kind of heterocentric uh conversations right so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that yeah. is actually something yeah. that i that i worry about this is kind of maybe my number one uh filtering mechanism for just people in my circle is just people who are unafraid uh of of the kind of status games who are looking to have these uh, heterocentric conversations and yeah, this is something that I really can't attest to in terms of the past version, right? I really can't say, like, I wasn't on any university campuses 20 years ago. I really can't say, like, were, were there actually <laughs> more people having these types of conversations or was it just, you know, was it just, you know, uh, a faulty memory? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, mm. Right. Well, I mean, compared to 19, late 60s, 68, for example, and the whole free speech movement at UC Berkeley, you know, where students were out protesting. I mean, it was, is it worse now? I don't know what the measure would be, what the metric would be. Again, I think it's more prominent. People are more aware of these things going on because they spread like wildfire. I, I see on Twitter right now, Fire is posting uh, articles about Ann Coulter yesterday at Cornell and that you know they were shouting at her, your words are violence. And now Fire is saying, no, words are not violence, but interrupting speakers from speaking is a form of censorship. You know, this all happened like within the last 24 hours, <laughs> maybe 12 hours. Yeah. I think uh, fire, yeah. actually fire surveys have kind of pointed in the direction that it is increasing, right? They, they've yes, found increasing yes. uh, self-censorship. Yes, but, that's right. Yeah. Uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Th that's the thing. I, I find like th this is, I, I would call the problem a decline in the average, in the, in the average quality of like an elite, of an elite college student, not necessarily just like not even on a kind of political level or on a moral level, but in a kind of just like purely, purely like cognitive intellectual level, right? That, that's the kind of thing that I'm more worried about. And mm -hmm. yeah, is, is this, is this possibly due to political factors? I'm kind of worried of fitting this too much into a box, right? I kind of consider this because this is a problem that I noticed before really caring too much about politics. This is something I was concerned about before that. And I was using to filter. Mm. Before yeah. That. I don't really, I don't know, Brian, yeah. it could be because, mm -hmm. you know, we know that polar political polarization has increased by many measures. Yes. You know, pe pe the number of people self-identifying as centrist has decreased people, self-identified as far right or far left have increased. That's for sure has happened. There's other measures. How much time do political party uh, congressmen spend with each other on the weekends, for example, that are cross party, not as much as they used to, you know, right, right. you know, and so on that, that's all true. Yeah. So anyway, all righty. Yeah. And is that, is that, is there a correlation there between political po polarization and willingness uh, and basically like self-censorship. Um, I, I think so. Like that, that in intuitively that seems right. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure if that correlation has actually been, uh, or if, yeah, if that co correlation has been actually found or if it's just a general kind of, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not so sure about that, but yeah, it, it seems either. likely to me. It could be. There's a, there's another good testable hypothesis there for somebody to <laughs> to implement. Yeah. Well, uh, we're coming up on the. You almost need to go, right? So I'll ask yeah, the last question time. of the show. 
Uh, yep. Time for the last question. Yep, go ahead. What is something that has too much chaos and needs more order, and something that has too much order and needs more chaos? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Let's see. Okay, that has too much chaos and needs more order. I would say uh, the current political movements to bring about social change, I'd say there's a little too much chaos. It could use a little bit little more order that is yeah. doing it legally slowly and so on you know I, I would say that's probably my answer there on the uh, flip side i think conservatives are a little too conservative they're a little too structured a little too ordered and could use a little more chaos in their system yeah that would be my answer all right uh thanks for coming on it was great speaking with you